Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Welcome to PerfWeb 26 Day 1, the only true dedicated ABCP CEU program. I am your host, Mike Brown. Joining me today on the panel will be two of my fellow perfusionists, Ms. Tammy Sparacino and Mr. Min Tran. Normally, Mr. Basha would be moderating this program, but uh, ironically, he was called in to participate in an AngioVac case as we speak. So I'm filling in in the interim, and uh, we're hoping that everyone enjoys the program. Now, this part is very important. We're all on social media. Please like us on Facebook, follow and share us on the Twitter and LinkedIn, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you can chat there also. Oh, and click the bell to receive notifications. You can also call in when you can see this announcement. Phone lines open and you can be live on the air. We are recruiting faculty. If you would like to be a part of our faculty or know of someone that you think would like to participate and be a part of your revolution in continuing education, please have them email me at the following info info at mediweb.com and we are expanding to develop nurse web and nurse CE programming for cardiac and critical care RNs. So please let your friends and colleagues know. Okay, so here is the schedule for the next three days. The schedule is online, so uh, you can follow that along as you uh, would like to. Tonight's program is ready to go. So we need to have Peter. At this time, our first guest will be Mr. Peter Makula. Pete is a senior product manager for AngioDynamics and has been with the company for about five years, managing the thrombus management portfolio. Pete has over 14 years of experience in the medical device industry managing devices in medical imaging, orthopedics, and vascular interventions. He has a BS in applied mathematics and an MBA in marketing from the University of Rochester. Peter, welcome. Uh, we're going to ask, uh, ask that uh, as you give your talk, if you will let us know when you're ready to change your slide. You give us a bit of a high sign so that we have our technicians locally who can get your appropriate slide up for you. So, Peter, if you're ready, you, sir. please continue. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on uh, on the show and, and letting me participate in uh, in Perf Web number 26. Um, Joe invited me to come talk about a little bit about AngioVac, and uh, you know, with that, we'll we'll get going. Um, I do apologize for the, the glare in the background, uh, tough time uh, in the day with the, uh, the office and the sun location, but uh, hopefully it's not too bad for everybody. Uh, next slide. So uh, AngioVac, for those of you who do not know, uh, in its simplest form is a vacuum for your veins. Um, it is indicated as a uh, venous drainage cannula for the removal of, of fresh, soft thrombi and emboli uh, during extracorporeal bypass for up to, up to six hours. Um, next, next slide. 
Uh, we'll get into a little bit more of, of what it's indicated for as we move along and talk about how it's used. Uh, but you can see here in the top left-hand corner um, the two business end options for the, the Angiovac platform. Uh, these represent the two uh, cannula shapes uh, that we offer uh, for, for the system. It is a 20-degree angle tip and a, a straight tip. And then in the lower left-hand corner, you see uh, the circuitry and the other components that go along with the, with the system. Um, like I mentioned earlier, in its simplest form, Angiovac is a, is a vacuum for your veins. And for every uh, milliliter or cc of blood that's aspirated from the body, it's filtered and simultaneously reinfused. Um, so I thought uh, what made the most sense is really to kick off uh, with where the device started. Next slide, please. So uh, Angiovac was invented in, in 2008 by a company called Vortex Medical. Um, this was established by two cardiothoracic surgeons in, in the Boston area. Um, they were doing an open surgical embolectomy case and uh, were literally tweezing clot out of the, uh, out of the lungs with, uh, with pickups. And we're discussing, you know, the possibility of using wall suction uh, in a case like that to, you know, to facilitate the removal of some of that material from the pulmonary arteries. And um, that's really where the Angiovac concept was born. Um, so they, re they received 510K clearance uh, for the first iteration of the device, the first generation device in uh, 2009 and started doing cases in, in, in 2011. Um, Angiodynamics came into the fold in 2012 and purchased Vortex uh, for $55 million um, in, the, in the late 2012 timeframe and uh, subsequently then transitioned into next generations, expanded indications, and, and kind of where we are today. Uh, so if we go to the next slide, uh, we see here a little bit more uh, uh, the path the, the device took and the platform took with respect to labeling, acquisition, and, and the generation of the device uh, we see in the market today. Um, after after Angiodynamics acquired the device, um, you know, obviously the, the uh, venous drainage cannula indication, while very broad and covers a lot of different areas, um, is very limiting in the sense that it's not uh, specifically indicated for any one disease state. Um, and Angiodynamics did the clinical work necessary uh, to expand the indication to, to in include specific anatomies that we'll talk about here in a little bit, as well as the disease state around th fresh soft thrombi or emboli, which is really what, what drove uh, where the device is being used today. Um, and subsequently, we, we launched the, the Angiovac Generation 2 device, which, uh, which is on the market today. And, and later this fall, we'll be launching the third generation of the, of the platform. Uh, so now we'll get into a little bit of how it works. Uh, next slide, please. So as we mentioned, um, you know, it is a, a uh, veno-veno bypass circuit. Um, but the business end, the, the Angiovac cannula itself, is a 22 French uh, balloon actuated uh, stainless steel coil cannula. So what we see here is the tip entering a vessel, um, utilizing an endoflator, 50-50-ish um, mix with contrast depending on preference uh, to inflate the balloon and create the funnel uh, or, or tulip that, that makes the distal end of, or distal tip of the angiovac cannula, allowing material uh, to be toothpasted into the system. Um, so this, this uh, you know, the device is, is pretty large, 22 French, but it's, it's that big for a reason, right? And we'll get into a little bit more about that uh, down, uh, down the road in the presentation. Next slide, please. 
so here we see a uh, sort of a schematic of the way uh, the angiovac system is set up and, and operating. Uh, you can see here that that we're aspirating out of the out of the jug, right jugular vein, uh, filtering it, and simultaneously reinfusing it into the right right uh, femoral vein. Um, this is driven by your off off the shelf uh, centrifugal pump. So whatever whatever manufacturer you use within the hospital or your perfusion team uses uh, within your facility, uh, as long as it's a three eighths eighths inch in and outflow, um, that will support the Angiovac platform. Um, you can really use any combination of, of four access points. Obviously, you see the right jugular and femoral utilized here, but you can use any combination of the jugulars or femorals. So the right or left based on, you know, what you're really trying to accomplish in the case, uh, what anatomy you're target targeting, uh, what uh, hardware or stenoses you may have to accommodate when you're choosing access access points. Obviously, if there's a stent or something like that in, in, in the right side and in the jugular, we may not choose that, that location for access um, and, and uh, choose another accordingly. Uh, basically, you're going to choose the site that optimizes your ability to navigate to uh, the point where the undesirable intravascular material resides um, and always, when possible, come from a place of embolic protection. And what I mean by that is simply that if the material you're trying to remove resides below the right atrium and IVC junction, you'd likely come from aspiration from above to protect any material from slipping past the cannula and embolizing to the lungs. Um, on the same, uh, on the same uh, sort of the same line of thought, uh, if the burden you're trying to re uh, remove resides above the right atrium and SVC junction, you may want to come from below with the angiovac. Uh, device to try and remove the material prior to it embolizing into the heart and, and further into the lungs. Next slide, please. Um, mentioned earlier that this is a veno-veno bypass, so uh, you know from a perfusion uh, standpoint, this is the easiest circuit you guys are going to build in a day. Uh, we have no heater, no reservoir, no oxygenator um, that you need to manage or deal with. This is simply um, access in, in two places uh, to aspirate, filter, and, and reinfuse. Um, obviously, the, the circuitry can be made much more complex uh, depending on what we're trying to accomplish, but from a straightforward on-label uh, setup, uh, Vino-Vino bypass, pretty straightforward uh, for you all, but uh, kind of gives you an idea of what, what we're working with here. Uh, next slide, please. Mentioned that um, you know we're currently on the second iteration of the device, and uh, you know uh, for those of you that have been supporting the platform or have experienced uh, with the platform from the beginning, um, there has been some significant changes made to the platform, uh, starting with the the cannula itself. Uh, originally was launched with a, a single shape, a, a straight cannula, which sort of limited your ability to, to not necessarily steer, but uh, provide some directionality and bias within the vessel or, or vasculature um, as you're you know, driving it to where it needs to go. Um, additionally, the, the original device didn't really have any radio-opaque markers on the distal end of the, uh, of the platform. So from a visualization standpoint under imaging, um, the, the RO markers on the tips of the pedals make it a lot easier for us to, to position the product appropriately and, and position the cannula in, in a place where it's most likely to aspirate the material you're, you're targeting. Um, and then, uh, next slide, please. From a circuitry standpoint, uh, added a, a true over-the-wire uh, Y adapter, which allows, you know, obviously a much safer deployment of the system as we as we use the rail system to get navigate and, and drive the system where it ultimately needs needs to go. Next slide, please. 
Uh, from a bigger picture standpoint, obviously we've talked about the cannula and circuit uh, separately, but they do marry and create one, uh, one system. Um, in addition to uh, the, the components that come with the Angiovac platform, there are some additional components that will need to need to be considered. Um, some type of inflation device to manage manage the uh, you know the, the cannula and the balloon itself. Uh, your access kits, dilator sets um, that you'll use to dilate, obviously up to the access sizes we need for the Angiovac cannula and reinfusion cannula. Uh, typically, we recommend um, an arterial reinfusion cannula because it generally offers um, an additional de-airing port, um, which is really just a nice to have safety option um, as as you're setting up. Uh, so that if you do have some air enter the system from anywhere, um, you have the ability to clamp and, and de-air without having to, to deprime or anything like that. Um, and then lastly, we recommend a, a 26 French access sheath. Um, again, uh, from a first glance, 26 French seems relatively large, but again, um, it's that, that big for a reason. And oftentimes folks that um, have a significant amount of experience with the, with the platform often ask for a larger device. Next size, please. Or next slide, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, I've uh, been talking about how big the device is, and and like I said, it, it's that big for a reason. The vessels that that the angiovac plays in, and the chambers in the heart, what the angiovac uh, uh, operates in, um, are relatively large with respect to the other vessels in the body. And the current uh, options that are out there to remove some of this material often, you know, often don't allow uh, for the size of burden we encounter in some of these situations. So again, the, the angiovac cannula and, and system is as big as it is for a reason and allows for the removal of larger material um, as we as we attack some of these burdens. Next next slide, please. And just to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how angiovac is deployed and what we're thinking about as as we, you know, use utilize the device uh, as you gain access and drive your wire uh, to the location you ultimately will place angiovac. Um, you will follow the funnel, or excuse me, follow the wire with the cannula and funnel um, accordingly. Uh, use the end deflator or inflation device to, to, to inflate the, the funnel itself to open the, the, the distal tip and create that, that opportunity for material to be toothpasted into the system. Um, initiate the flow on your pump to start establishing uh, some negative pressure and you start moving the cannula towards towards the burden. And uh, this is where you'll, you'll notice a significant tactile feel and difference between uh, what we refer, refer to as chugging and um, as, you, uh, as you encounter material, you'll feel a, real, a really um, non-rhythmic chug. And that's the, the, the cannula itself and the system itself engaging with the undesirable material you're aspirating. And that's different than um, like the cavitation of a vessel if the negative pressure may be too high. And what you'll see with, with cavitation of the vessels, you'll see a much more rhythmic um, collection and release of the negative pressure. And that allows you to understand the difference between engaging actual material you're trying to remove and aspirate and whether the negative pressure is, is too high and actually collapsing the vessel. Um, and if that occurs, all we really need to do is just back off the negative pressure slightly uh, to maintain the highest uh, negative pressure we can without, you know, without risking closing the vessel or anything like that. Um, and the reason for that is really flow is our friend here. Uh, next slide, please. And as uh, as we as we build negative pressure, it really allows um, the system to kind of do its thing and, and build up the pressure necessary to aspirate this material. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen some of the pictures of, of cases uh, done with Angiovac on Twitter or, or LinkedIn. 
and sometimes these these clots are really very large and uh, just large pieces of, of material and um, it doesn't just get removed uh, immediately it takes time for that pressure to build up and um, and create the the suction necessary to remove it from the system so we've got a couple um, couple videos here to kind of help uh, demonstrate how uh, the angiovac does its does its thing uh, so we'll start with a, a bench top uh, video what we have here for you. Uh, next slide, please. And if we could hit play. And obviously this is just a, uh, you know, a tube um, that's going to demonstrate, you know, the angiovac concept and how it works uh, to toothpaste that material into the system, um, but gives you an idea of the concept and, and the functionality of the device itself. Um, we'll start here with this benchtop example and, and then show a couple animal models uh, we have for you to, to demonstrate how this, how this procedure actually works. And obviously, the uh, the larger pieces took a little bit more work as the, as the material got conformed uh, to the inside of the of the funnel, and ultimately then then went. Um, as we as we encountered some of the smaller pieces uh, after the large uh, first chunk was was taken, uh, obviously aspirated much much easier uh, and kind of flew out of there relatively quickly. Uh, next next uh, image, please. So this is a, a, a sheep model, actually. Um, from a, a little while ago, but does a very good job of demonstrating the functionality and, and sort of how uh, how angiovac works when it's actively engaged with a clot and um, how it sort of works to, to, to pull it in further. And then we'll take a look at one that has more of a passive engagement that actually sort of catches it and brings it into the system, but gives you an idea of how these, uh, these both work. Right. And this is the... Uh, the, uh, the passive engagement. So this is tumbling around a little bit. Think think you're, you're tumbling right heart masses, your right atrial masses, PE and transit. Um, this is the same kind of uh, kind of idea. And obviously, it takes a little bit for the uh, the negative pressure to build and ultimately toothpaste it into the system. All right, great, thank you. Uh, next slide, please. As, as we talk a little bit about you know where Anjuac is actually uh, actually utilized, um, you know we do cases in the SVC, uh, the IVC, the right atrium, and really the two is, two largest areas of growth really for for Anjuac in terms of procedural uh, utility uh, is with tricuspid excuse me tricuspid valve infective endocarditis uh, associated with intravenous drug abuse. Um, and with device-related uh, inf infective endocarditis associated with defibrillators or, or infected pacemaker leads. Um, so in both scenarios, um, ultimately what we're doing here is, is uh, debulking or doing a basic vegectomy to kind of reduce the bacterial load in the system and ultimately allow um, antibiotics to be rendered effective. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into some of the disease state stuff and some case examples. Next slide, please. Um, Here's just to kind of give everybody a, a picture of what, uh, how angiovac is used sort of in practice uh, today. Um, obviously a good chunk of our uh, cases are in the IVC and SVC space and that VT, VTE space. Um, you know, more of the DVT, iliofemoral, large burden type, type cases. Um, the other large portion of our, our, our cases are really in the right heart. Uh, spoke earlier about some of the infective endocarditis stuff. Um, 
the lead vegetation and tricuspid valve endocarditis cases are our largest growing uh, portion of cases. And over the last fiscal year have been about 70% of our cases. So uh, pretty pretty nice mix of, of different types of applications and utility for the, for the platform. And as we move forward um, and iterate the device, um, there's quite a bit of data coming out that will that will support some of these different applications and kind of give um, our users some confidence that um, these these various applications are good good homes for for the Angiovac platform. Next slide, please. So as we as we look to sort of assemble more robust formal uh, prospective clinical data, um, there is data out there for uh, for the support of Angiovac. Um, if you do a PubMed search, obviously anecdotal, but there is about 70 references uh, to Angiovac in, in the literature, literature dating back to 2011. Uh, we just recently presented um, the largest single series of, uh, of data in support of one specific application um, at the Heart Rhythm Society this past March. And um, that was a 100 patient series, all uh, with using application uh, during lead and, and device extraction. So pretty exciting to, to see some of this stuff come to fruition. And um, if we move to the next slide, uh, another example of some of the work that's kind of completing. Uh, we've just finished enrollment at the UCLA uh, Rapid Outcomes Database uh, Angiovac uh, Registry, and we'll be working toward publishing um, the first year follow-up for the first 100 patients in the next handful of months here. Uh, but wanted to you know, just put out the indicator that, that Angio Angiodynamics is working hard to, to support the platform and make it clear that uh, Angiovac does have a role in, in, the, in the toolkit. And while um, it's not a perfect device uh, for every application, nor nor is any other, which is why we have and often take this toolkit approach for these types of cases. Uh, it does have a viable uh, place in that bag and toolkit. Um, so with that, uh, let's let's go through a few cases and just give you an example of some of the stuff uh, that we're doing with Angiovac. Um, I'll kick off each section with a little bit of the disease state background, just to kind of give everybody an idea uh, of why why we're doing what we're doing. Next slide, please. Um, so these are just some actual procedure results, obviously, uh, you know, dependent on individual use, user, clinical situation, et cetera, et cetera, but um, examples of some of the stuff uh, we see out there. Next slide, please. Um, so for the, those of you who don't know, um, infective endocarditis is ultimately an infection uh, and inflammation of the inner lining of your heart. Um, ultimately, as the d disease progresses, um, it obviously becomes much more robust, and you actually see the destruction um, and growth of, of bacteria within the, uh, the heart structures and, and the breakup and destruction of the valves and inner lining itself. And uh, obviously see a pretty gross uh, image in the background of what happens as we, as we, uh, as we see this disease progress. Um, there's a couple of animations along with these next handful of slides. So if you can kind of just click uh, forward a few times so that the text pops up, um, that might be easiest. Next slide, please. Thank you. So um, this is a pretty serious event. Obviously, we see that um, as as any type of material embolize, embolizes, we see mortality increase. And, and we really just see that, that as that material becomes infected, um, the risk of that uh, material embolizing and being septic um, increases the risk for mortality, uh, especially if we have to consider opening that, that patient up. Um, can you jump ahead two slides, please? Next slide, please. And um, 
if we take a look at what what therapies are out there for you know for these patients, um, every every patient you know involved or, or suffering from IE uh, will be prescribed uh, antibiotics on some level. Um, ultimately, you know the, the the amount of disease and amount of bacteria in their system will dictate how effective um, the, these drugs are with combating that type of uh, type of disease. And and oftentimes, because of the type of patient that these these folks are, aren't often great candidates for for open surgery or um, or follow up or uh, maintaining the cleanliness of their access sites, et cetera, et cetera. So um, oftentimes this is the only option we have for some of these patients. And, and prior to something like Angiovac, um, it was often uh, a risky open surgical procedure, antibiotics uh, or, or bust. So, um, you know, as we progress forward, as, as some of these epidemics continue to increase and become more of a social problem for our, for our society, um, you know, we need to come up with solutions to better manage manage these these patients. Next slide, please. Um, so, uh, mentioned earlier, aside from antibiotics, uh, some of the options that these patients have are, are really just surgical. So, um, considering that you know, once uh, septic material embolizes uh, and the increases in mortality, some sometimes upwards of 50 or 60 percent in those certain situations, no one really wants to open up these patients if they don't have to, and and that's really where Angiovac comes into play and offers a percutaneous way to ultimately debulk this material. And, and move forward uh, without having to crack open someone's chest. Next, next slide, please. Um, ultimately, um, you know, the, the pathogenesis of infective endocarditis follows the path of, of some of our, our normal blood clots, uh, you know, clot cascade, right? Um, and if we think about Virchow's triad and, and why blood clots often farm, form, you know, endocardial injury is often uh, a reason that that this will start and begin and and begin that clot cascade and in this situation that's no different um, as the bacteria damages the the uh, uh, structures within the heart your body wants to obviously repair that injury and uh, blood clot starts to form in those areas and obviously as that blood clot mixes uh, with the bacteria present from the infection, uh, you start to see this vegetation form rather than just a true uh, true blood clot and as that as that uh, vegetation matures and, and gets uh, larger, uh, you see the bacterial load in the patient system increase, uh, and you start to see um, the the destruction of the, of the, the heart structures themselves. And, and that's where um, the, the system ultimately becomes overwhelmed and uh, where, where angiovac comes into play to hope, hopefully debulk, debulk that mass. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, just to wrap up some of the disease state summary, um, you know, the right-sided infective endocarditis accounts for about 20% of all uh, endocarditis cases. Um, this stat used to be about 10%, but with the, the influx and the rate of, of the opioid epidemic and, and some of those uh, challenges um, coming to bear, um, we've seen this, uh, the incidence of this on the right side, uh, specifically with the tricuspid valve increase pretty significantly. And um, unfortunately, um, a lot of these patients are, are uh, uh, intravenous drug abusers. Um, so I'll give you a case example um, as we move forward here. Next slide. So this was a uh, tricuspid valve vegetation. I uh, had, had a burden about two by three centimeters on the tricuspid valve. Um, this is a 24-year-old male with a history of intravenous drug abuse. Um, responded, uh, excuse me, uh, presented to the hospital with a, with a fever and wasn't responding obviously to his antibiotic treatment. 
Um, the goal was ultimately to uh, intervene with angiovac to debulk the mass and try and minimize the impact to the patient. Next, next slide, please. So uh, we utilized a uh, 26 French gore dry seal sheath for access um, in the right internal jugular. Uh, they chose an 18 French reinfusion cannula into the right femoral vein and ultimately were able to achieve a flow rate of, of up to 3.4 liters per minute. Use TEE to, to guide and, and navigate the procedure um, and ultimately use a snare to help uh, manipulate uh, the device and remove the vegetation from the valve itself. Next slide, please. Um, I believe this is a video and it'll give you an idea of what the device, or excuse me, what the vegetation looked like on the valve uh, as it was, uh, as it appeared on the echo. If you could hit play, please. So you can kind of see the, um, the burden sort of flapping back and forth across the, uh, the valve, um, back and forth, sort of prolapsing in and out of the uh, right atrium and right ventricle. And uh, we're able to get in there with angiovac and uh, ultimately debulk de a good portion of that material. And you can see what we were able to remove on the next, uh, next slide. So um, if you hit play, it's a little difficult to see, but you'll see it's kind of circulating in, uh, kind of hitting the wall, the filter there temporarily. Um, and then I believe the next slide will show what it, takes, what it looks like out on the, on the table. So uh, ultimately only a couple, few centimeters in, in, in size, uh, very different than the type of burden we pull out with some of the uh, you know, large DVT burden, iliofemoral type cases, but um, make, making it its impact uh, nonetheless. Uh, next slide, please. So same, uh, same idea. So uh, the other side of the infective endocarditis uh, world with respect to angiovac is with respect to device-related infective endocarditis, right? Obviously, pacemakers, defibrillators, um, other cardiac devices are there, obviously, to help and support the patient. Uh, but because it is a foreign body, it ultimately um, acts as a nidus uh, for infection in the, in the wrong, wrong circumstances. Um, and as, as the, the population is, is aging and, and uh, growing, um, the incidence of this type of, type of infection is only going to, to grow. And uh, we're going to see um, this type of problem occur more often. Obviously, there's there's changes in in the works with leadless pacemakers, and you know which patients are appropriate for those types of devices, et cetera. But uh, for the time being, um, the leads will be something that needs to be managed over the next next bunch of bunch of years. Um, next slide, please. So. Um, just to paint the picture of how how large this uh, this population really is, you know, we have over seven million people with devices um, in their bodies currently, uh, with almost a million of those devices being implanted annually. Um, it's a pretty significant number of leads to manage um, as we progress forward here, and as healthcare continues to improve and and, and extend the lives, uh, you know, of our, of our populace. It places a larger burden on the devices and the demands for these devices as we get older and ultimately uh, creates opportunities for, for infection and whatnot to set in as, as these reside in, in these patients longer term. Um, so that's the situation we're faced with. And we'll give you an example of, um, of, of a case uh, here in a, in a minute. Next slide. Uh, here we just see that as we as we start to stack 
um, complications associated with cardiovascular devices, um, the incidence for mortality and the likelihood of infective endocarditis increases. Um, and obviously, if we're, we have no infection, um, the mortality for a pacemaker or defibrillator is very, very low, uh, significantly under 1%. And then as we start to stack and Lego some of these challenges on these patients, um, the risk for mortality obviously increases. Next slide, please. Okay, so we have a um, right ventricular lead uh, with a vegetation um, both in the right atrium and on the tricuspid valve. Um, this is a 70-year-old male uh, with a history of hypertension, diabetes, a uh, handful of heart attacks, and pretty poor uh, perfusion. Um, so he presented with uh, infection secondary to um, the right ventricular lead vegetation. Um, access was done with a 26 French uh, gore dry seal sheath um, in the right IJ from the neck and a uh, reinfusion into the left IJ. Um, obviously, uh, imaging via TEE again and a flow rate of up to 3.5 liters per minute were, uh, were achieved and um, they were able to manipulate the cannula to about 45 degrees to help target the vegetation uh, that they were going after. Um, next, next slide, please. So we see here um, that you can see the lead in the in the general middle of the um, the image there, and sort of the the burden kind of tumbling a little bit uh, just north uh, east of it um, uh, as it's tumbling around in there. Next slide, please. And we can see here what uh, what was actually removed from uh, you know from this this patient. Um, looks like a little bit of a cast of the lead itself. Um, you know, obviously, as we manage these, these patients historically, as we, we look to do some of these extractions, um, the historic pull and pray methodology um, would often just embolize this material um, into the lungs. And with the, you know, the advent of, of, of procedures like angiovac, uh, we don't need to do that, right? We can park angiovac in place as we're performing these extractions, whether utilizing um, another lead extraction tool to help free the lead from this material or not. Um, but we can use tools like like Angiovac and some of the other aspiration devices on the market to help facilitate the removal of this material uh, to, to avoid sending it down to the lungs. Uh, next slide, please. Are we doing okay on time? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Yes. Um, so um, as we take a look at some of the other types of cases that, that Angiovac is used for um, and really where um, the utility of the device really originated um, is in the, the large vessel BTE type cases. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more of those types of um, encounters and start it with an uh, inferior vena cava case. Um, so this was a 34-year-old uh, woman, two, two weeks postpartum. Um, she presented to the ER with chest pain uh, after she was found down uh, by her uh, one of her children at home. So the chest, showed, uh, chest CT showed uh, bilateral PE uh, with clot originating from the right uh, pulmonary artery, uh, three to four centimeters from the bi bifurcation. Um, so an additional scan showed that there was a large thrombus uh, with attachment to the uterine vein and uh, a very risky candidate for thrombolysis. Uh, the risk is that we, we lyse the patient and then the, the large burden attached to, to the uterine vein uh, was broken off in a particular piece and then ultimately traveled and potentially exacerbated the problem already occurring uh, in her pulmonary arteries. Um, so we see in the next slide what that looks like in her uh, IVC. 
and it's pretty dark shadow in the middle there um, that, that, that represents the burden. And um, we can talk a little bit about what was done in the case uh, on the next slide here. So um, a temporary filter was, was placed um, super renal uh, to protect uh, the risk of knocking that loose. Um, access was done uh, from the right IJ from aspira uh, for aspiration and for the right femoral for reinfusion and utilize the left IJ for uh, the retrieval sheath for the temporary IVC filter. Um, ultimately, the, fish, the physician utilized a balloon to bias the cannula to one side of the, the IVC to help direct it to the, to the burden. Um, obviously, any number of interventional techniques can be used to, have, to help get you where you need to go. Uh, we hope that as we uh, move forward with new generations of the device, uh, less additional manipulation will, will be necessary. Uh, but in this case, um, help the physician get where it needed to go. Uh, next slide, please. And we can see here, if you hit the video, um, how clear the cava actually looks um, when we hit the, uh, hit the play. You'll see a, a flush of contrast come through. So pretty, pretty patent vessel um, there, uh, given, given how uh, large the burden was where we started. So uh, pretty significant clearing of, of, of the burden. Um, and in the next, we'll see, see what we caught. So uh, two filters, um, pretty, pretty, pretty standard for one of these IVC cases. Um, you know, the right heart cases typically use one or two filters. The IVC DVT type cases typically utilize a handful. Um, ultimately depends on the amount of burden you're ultimately trying to remove. Next, uh, next slide, please. So we talked a little bit about uh, right atrial masses in the in the previous uh, grouping of cases, but um, here's another example of a tumbling right heart mass. This was a 42-year-old female uh, with a history of lung cancer. Um, she had a uh, port in place for the infusion of her chemotherapy, and ultimately, uh, after her echocardiogram revealed uh, an RA mass on her port, um, number of options were considered uh, to, to remove the burden. Ultimately, Angiovac was chosen to try and try and remove remove the, uh, the material. Next slide, please. I'm not sure if this is a video, but uh, it may uh, may play. If not, this is just a still image of a pretty significant burden on the tip of the uh, port and um, gives you an idea of what we're uh, what we're up against or what we were up against. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, Access with the 26, four, uh, 26 French core dry seal sheath in the right femoral vein and uh, uh, left femoral for the reinfusion cannula. Um, Angiovac was placed in the right atrium with, uh, with attempts to uh, remove the material. Um, after the physician realized that, um, that the material was pretty ad adherent to the port itself, um, they utilized a snare to help lasso the material from the port and ultimately pull it into the angiovac system uh, while it was on pump. Um, in the next image, you'll, you'll see the, the post image in, in a pretty clear, uh, clear chamber of the heart. So pretty clean, clean right atrium from where, uh, where the case started. So pretty good work from the physician and their, their team there. And then next slide, we get to see what it looks like in the filter and then on the table. All right, next slide, please. Um, all right, uh, last case. This is just uh, another example of a, really an SVC case that uh, is traveling into the into the right atrium. This was a 
a 45-year-old female, uh, post-removal uh, of a pick line about a month a month prior. Uh, the thrombus was, was required on a follow-up T, or discovered on a follow-up TE. Um, they used a right femoral approach for the angiovac system and um, found that it was adherent to, to the junction itself. Um, and they used the left femoral vein to, um, to reinfuse. Um, ultimately, when they were able to get uh, flow rates up and, and on, on the burden itself, um, it was pretty, pretty much aspirated relatively easily, uh, but kind of gives you, gives you an idea of what uh, methodologies are utilized um, to help facilitate the removal of some of these burdens. Ultimately, how, you know, how, um, uh, how mature, how attached, and, and how malleable the material is ultimately dictate how easy or difficult it will be to remove the device or move the material and helps, helps assess the patient in general and whether Angiovac is the right device or whether, you know, one of the competitive tools are, are more appropriate for the patient. And ultimately, you're choosing the right tool or club from your golf bag to try and hit the shot you need to hit. And uh, oftentimes, Angiovac is the right club, um, but you do, you do have a lot of other options out there. Um, and uh, if we go to the next slide, it gives you an idea of what the pre-image looked like here. Uh, if you could hit play. With that guy tumbling around, uh, but attached at the junction, and then uh, if we go to the next slide, you see what we were able to catch. So um, that's what I actually had for you guys today. Um, if you had any questions, happy to answer them. Um, but if not, I believe we're transitioning into a hands-on demonstration. Um, and with that, thanks again for your time. Uh, let me know if I can do anything else to help you guys. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. We appreciate it. I've got uh, a, a couple of real quick questions, if you have just a minute. Yes, sir. Um, considering that uh, this has to be done on a fluoro, I'm assuming most of these cases are done in the cardiac cath lab or uh, some type of, uh, of a yes, room? Yes, yes, sir. Can... Uh, great question. Um, typically, these cases are done in the hybrid room uh, yes. just because it gives us the best uh, ability to, to optimize the available imaging. Uh, with the specialties that need to be in the room to support these types of cases. So in a perfect world, uh, the cases are typically done in a hybrid suite. And uh, last question from me, and I'll give it to my colleagues. Um, with this uh, intervention, do you, are you finding who takes control of this? Is it usually the cardiac surgeons uh, mm -hmm. or is it the uh, cardiologists or someone else possibly? Great. Um, so very uh, very interesting uh, answer there um, so ultimately it depends on what application the, the facility is is intending on using the device for so um, if it's generally more of a VTE focused uh, use of the device more for the DVT iliofemoral IVC type type cable cases um, it's typically owned by uh, vascular surgery or, or interventional radiology and obvious obviously as as perfusion is involved cardiac surgery is often there uh, to support the use of that um, uh, that resource um, but also be there for for cardiac backup if if any complications should occur um, and then on the other side of the coin if, if it's a, if it's a shop that tends to uh, use angiovac more in the right heart for the infective endocarditis tumbling right heart mass type stuff um, the cardiac surgeons eps interventional cardiologists typically um, take take the lead and um, in the shops that that really utilize it for multiple applications depending on who you know what the patient is facing um, there's often a pretty collaborative approach depending on you know what what's best for the patient right um, if it makes sense for cardiac surgery and an interventional cardiology to tackle it 
uh, so be it. Um, if it's another combination of those specialties, um, sometimes that works also. Excellent, Pete. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, sir. Questions from Tammy or Men? I actually have one question. So um, the cannulation seems like it's probably standard procedure. Is there any additional training that someone who's interested in doing this, a cardiologist or cardiac surgeon or a vascular surgeon would need to do? Do you provide some kind of training for that? Sure. So a couple things here. Um, right now, every single case that we do out in the field, uh, we offer in-person clinical support for. Mm -hmm. So as, um, as, as facilities uh, or physicians and teams prepare uh, for these cases, we offer a, a clinical hotline that they can reach out to, provide images to, speak with one of our clinical specialists so they can collaborate on the best approach for the case and help assess whether it is an appropriate use for angiovac or not. Um, ultimately, we want what's best for the patient also. And um, if we don't believe that it's an appropriate use of angiovac or we believe that there may be a different approach that's that's more suitable, um, the, an the angiovac clinical team will recommend it as such. And uh, in addition to um, the clinical support on site for you know the, the actual clinical cases, um, when they when they show up to do um, that case, they will in-service perfusion, surgical techs, uh, nurses, uh, any other support physicians that will be in the room to help prepare everyone for how, how the case typically will go. And then from a, a training standpoint, we do offer uh, angiovac physician training. Uh, we typically hold about four classes um, a year uh, regionally around the country. And um, if anyone is interested in those opportunities, we'd be happy to provide uh, Joe and your teams um, the, the appropriate information so that we could, we could offer that resource to, to you and your teams. Okay, thank you. I had a question. So how many different type of uh, different size for the access retrieval cannulas, ang angiovac cannulas do you offer? So um, we, we only actually offer the one size angiovac cannula, which is a 22 French cannula in the 20 degree tip or the uh, straight tip. Um, from a reinfusion cannula standpoint, uh, you, you could utilize whichever um, reinfusion cannulas you you utilize at your specific hospital um, there is no uh, one specific manufacturer that that makes one that's better or worse than another um, it's all preference uh, typically though you're, you're dictated by flow rates right so um, if we're aspirating a 22 French um, you know as close to 22 French back in optimizes your flow rates um, so we typically recommend something in that 18 French range, um, but but we do cases with you know 16 and 20 French reinfusion cannulas on a regular basis. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it, Pete. Yes, Thank you very much. Um, I'm not sure where we are in the program right now. Should we? Want to do the demonstration? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Are we ready to go straight into it, or do we take a break? I just don't have a schedule in front. Go ahead and go into it. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, Pete. Okay, we're back uh, live in the studio. We have the circuit set up. Uh, we have, you can utilize the circuit with any type of a centrifugal pump. We're using an old Delphin today, uh, old timer, but seems to work okay. That's right. And uh, what we have here, we've got men with our cannulas, our extraction and our perfusion cannulas. And what we're basically going to do is we're going to go on basically VV ECMO with this. So what we're going to do, you can see the lines that come out. We're going to have this uh, vessel representing our patient and his vascular volume. We're going to draw the blood in 
two with negative pressure into our filter here. It's kind of hard to see the filter, but uh, it's a graduated filter on the inside of it. The volume will come in and, of course, go out the bottom, making our um, VV loop. And as we get started on that, then we'll show you how the unit will function with drawing the clot out. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, start our pump. And man, you just keep that down yeah. in there good. I'm going to yeah. go start at about two liters. You want to have this uh, at about this level right here as you start. And this way, what we've got is our circuit ready to go. And this is uh, basically, as you said, about VV ECMO. This gives you a chance to uh, get all of our prime out of it and everything and, and good to go. Uh, when you actually put the extraction device on the clot, what you're going to have to do is to make sure that you turn on your pump flow very, very high from your centrifugal pump and keep it high. Uh, what you do not want to do is lose traction of the thrombus and all of a sudden it would become a um, just a free-floating thrombus. So once you have the clot snared and ready to extract it, do not turn your pump off because that negative pressure vacuum is what keeps that clot on the end of that catheter. Okay, now what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go ahead and turn the flow up very, very high. Let me go ahead and open up the balloon. Oh, you might have to turn the RPM down a little bit, Mike, I think. It's not opening. Are the pedals open? Are the pedals open? Uh, yeah, don't make sure you don't bring it above the water line. Go ahead, you can, can you, so I'm holding it. What do you want me to do? Just uh, inflate it, inflate it, inflate it, and, okay. then, and then close it off. Okay. All right, you should be ready to Okay, you ready to turn up RPM? RPMs are all the way up. All the way up? Maybe you might have to open and close it. Yeah, it's not open.
Did that do anything? up all the way, you get a little bit more vacuum now. You know, oh, you know, we got, we got a little bit, we got airlock, that's why, that's why. We got an airlock here. That's why it's not sucking anymore. Oh, okay. was it, because of this? There it, it is, goes. it just sucked okay. it through. There it goes. There you go. Okay. There, you go. there it is. Okay. What we can do now is go ahead and take our clamps as the vacuum did occur and we'll go ahead and turn our flow off, clamp our lines, and as you can see we've got all of this volume of stuff in our filter and that would be a successful Angiovac case right there. Happens very, very quickly. Doesn't take long once you gain, gain access and have everything running. And um, what you can do afterward is you can separate the filter from the lines, and then you can utilize that and put it out and take your pictures that you want for documentation. But that's as quick as the case pretty much goes. It's very, very fast. Does the job very, very and well. And I think initially we had a delay with the device being able to suck it in because uh, the access site where they can uh, for the for the for the for the wire it was open right so there was a slight leak so we lost some negative pressure there right so in the event if all things are closed and tight it should happen pretty fast just as you saw as soon as we made that that tight attachment right and that's where the clinical specialist comes in hand with this they'll be working with the cardiologists the surgeons or the interventional radiologists or whomever may be in there. And uh, it's good to have those folks around because they can uh, show the, the guys how to make sure they manipulate the cannulas right, the lines right, and everything works good to create a good result. Right. That's good it job. in a nutshell. All right. At this point now, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Tammy uh, Spersino. She is once again a profusionist with our company, and she's going to present her material at this time. Hello, everyone. I am going to be talking about sternotomy versus minimally invasive um, surgeries. Now, there's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of interest in this right now. This is going to be a general overview, looking at the benefits of avoiding, uh, avoiding a full sternotomy. Let's start in the beginning. Where did the, all of this minimally invasive stuff start? Well, it actually started quite a long time ago in the um, mid, uh, early to mid 18th century, where we had um, cytoscopes that were first um, introduced. First one that I could find any record of was with an army surgeon uh, in Germany. 
um, who developed what he called the light conductor in 1805. And what he did was he used uh, some different manipulations with funnels and a candle and a mirror, trying to be able to visualize inside of nasal cavities and the urethra. Now, he had a minimal success. He had a lot of uh, problems with the flame uh, injuring the patients, and he actually didn't progress um, too much with that. There were some animal trials done with this as well, but he kind of got the ball rolling with it. Then we're going to move along to the first functional endoscope was in 1826. Simultaneously, we had some things going on in Paris and in Boston. They're using a thin centrifugal, uh, cylindrical um, tube that they put into the bladder and they used a beam of light from a petroleum-filled lamp and mirrors for visualization. Now we're moving into, there were a lot of different experimentations moving up to this point, but here's where we really start getting started with the minimally invasive surgery. Um, the first uh, therapeutic application for an endoscope was uh, done in Sweden and in Germany by uh, Dr. Jacobus in 1912. He did a thoracoscopy to free lung um, adhesions from a, a neurothorm. Uh, pneumothorax treatment for a patient that had tuberculosis. Then moving into the mid-20th century, it was primarily used diagnostically. Uh, we had a lot of internists using it uh, to diagnose some different things and then kind of some advances were made in the 1940s and 50s by gynecologists who started using it for fertility um, assessments. Moving into modern times, um, there were a lot of challenges. Often these uh, minimally invasives were difficult to perform. They had unusual patient positioning. One um, literature article I read described the doctor having to do acrobatics to be able to actually um, use the uh, endoscopes to visualize what he was needing to look at. It caused longer surgery times because, of course, uh, unfamiliar with these types of things. And they had lack of technical skills because it was a new technology. They were also limited by advancing for quite some time because of where we were with technology, with uh, you know, cameras and lights and all of those sorts of things. So they kind of got stuck for um, several decades. And many uh, doctors also had a lot of skepticism in this area, thinking that it was just better to stick to the traditional means of surgery. Now, in the 1980s, there became a huge growth. We had a huge advances in technology. We had digital cameras with video imaging. No longer did the surgeon have to hold a handheld uh, camera and uh, perform surgery at the same time, which you can imagine would be extremely limiting. They were able to perform more complex cases because they actually had use of both their hands. Okay, so you might be thinking, didn't hear anything about cardiac surgery in there. That's because they weren't interested or nobody had thought about performing it. I couldn't find anything about it. Really no interest until the 1990s. Then we have our first minimally invasive cardiac surgery. It was an AVR performed by Crossgrove and Cosgrove and Sebeck in 1996 at Cleveland Clinic. They used a 10 centimeter, 10 centimeter peristernal incision, femoral cannulation. 
Um, they determined uh, that it was success and very beneficial. They described it as a simplified technique. It was much quicker opening and closing the chest, and they had good surgical exposure. Just a little review here. So we On uh, the far left-hand screen, that's, of course, the traditional sternotomy. It's 8 to 10 inches um, down the breastbone. Then we've got the um, right thoracotomy, uh, sorry, uh, mid-sternotomy, and that can be in the upper portion of the sternum or the lower portion of the sternum, depending on what kind of surgery is being performed. And we've got the thoracotomy, uh, in this case would be a right thoracotomy, um, minim minimal incision, that's usually about um, four to six centimeters. And then all the way to the right, we've got um, ports where um, robotic surgery can be used to visualize for the surgeries. Talk a little bit about the benefits of minimally invasive versus a sternotomy. First off, something a patient is often very interested in is there's cosmetic benefits. It's smaller incisions, smaller scars, which of course leads to less pain. There's lower risk for infection because we're not having to go through the sternotomy. Lower risk for bleeding. There's less use for blood transfusions. They have a shorter hospital stay, which is always desirable to them. There's decreased financial burden um, from their length of stay and for their aftercare. Shorter recovery, it's um, one to two weeks for a minimally invasive versus a six to eight weeks for normal activities. And, and we have some hospital benefits. Now you'll see a lot of these benefits overlap, but they're gonna be from different perspectives, of course. Overall, faster recovery, um, hospitals see that as a benefit as well. It's going to free up some of their beds, and uh, that leads to um, less time for infections, lower readmission rates post-operative one year, which is highly beneficial. Then there's all the cost savings. There's reduced cardiac imaging, reduced laboratory tests, lower use of blood products, less time in the ICU, shorter hospital stay, and overall reduced staffing resources. Okay, so we've heard all these benefits. We're like, why isn't everybody doing it? Well, there's some challenges that have to be considered. Okay, first off, there's the surgical skill set. There's a steep learning curve. And sometimes it's not just being trained, it's the frequency of cases. How often are you gonna be able to have the patients um, that are good candidates for this? Are you going to have the available mentors to help you get your skill set up? There's also working in the smaller operative field. There's also um, a non-standardization of techniques. For the exact same procedure, many surgeons might have a different approach, might use different instruments, different types of cannulas, different ways uh, that they're going to arrest the heart or not arrest the heart. There's often increased cross-clamp time and bypass time, especially in the beginning. Sometimes there's poor patient selection because you are trying to keep up the frequency of the cases and get the practice in so that you can become better. Then you can have poor results and then there's decre decreased confidence in your patient population, in your hospital administration, and overall just in the surgical team that's performing it. There's a need for specialized equipment, which can be very expensive depending on, again, what um, standard techniques that your particular program is interested in doing. 
There could be just instruments. There could be cameras and audiovisual equipment that you want to um, install. There could be the need to develop a hybrid room. Maybe you already have a hybrid room, but it's being used by cardiology and vascular teams. So now that's a, a, you're going to have scheduling issues and so forth. Okay, so our key points. What are we going to do now? Well, we do know, according to the literature, that the morbidities and survival rate are the same. Many patients are becoming more educated about the surgeries that are being performed today, and so they're going to start requesting this sort of thing. The cost-saving surgical option for hospital and patient is going to be desirable on both sides. And overall, it can provide a quicker recovery for these patients. These are my references. Thank you. And I thought we'd open it up to discussion. We've all had experience with uh, minimally invasive surgeries, mm -hmm. especially in the last couple years. And I uh, want to talk about the experiences that you've had with them. The uh, case that we generally do minimally invasive are aortic valve replacements. We have two surgeons quite active in that. Uh, Drs. Matoria, who will be on our panel later on today, as well as Dr. Maniscalco. We've had very good results with these. Um, from a perfusion standpoint, it's pretty much uh, status quo as we do things. Uh, obviously, since the surgeon is working in a much smaller area, uh, the onus is on them to uh, be able to gain the access and good uh, visualization of the surgical field. Uh, no, it's normal uh, uh, cannulation uh, with the respect of a fem-fem bypass situation. Mm -hmm. We use uh, long venous cannulas to drain the SVC and IVC, and we use short cannula for femoral arterial access for inflow back to the patient. Uh, this provides pretty good uh, visualization for the surgeon. And then as they make their small incision and they get all their uh, instrumentation in, they use our specialized instruments for not only the extraction of the old valve, but uh, placing the seating and uh, putting in the new valve also. Mm -hmm. um, standard um, cardioplegia tends to occur. We, our guys like to use direct osteoperfusion of cardioplegia uh, that helps them along the way. And uh, really, it's a very nice procedure. Uh, patients really appreciate the end result, too, with having a much smaller incision. Mm -hmm. What do you think some of the challenges are that you've encountered? Uh, one of the things is just to make sure, like you would do for any type of a fem-fem bypass, is making sure you get, get good return back, uh, venous mm -hmm. return back. That's always a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, you will also notice in most of these patients, we do hypothermia down to about 32 or 30 degrees, depending upon the surgeon. And what you see upon rewarming are sometimes are some uh, challenges toward draining the patient, mm -hmm. but uh, manipulation of the cannulas, uh, good volume and good flows from the uh, pump circuit tends to alleviate most of those. Uh, as we don't have a camera in our room to actually see when the heart gets, quote, overloaded by the surgeon, we depend upon them to say we're getting a little full or, or we uh, mm -hmm. need for you guys to uh, increase on the vents a little bit more. But other than that, uh, works out very, very well, very mm -hmm. well. I agree. That's the main challenge I think I've had as well is just the venous drainage. Often because they have a, um, they're going femoral, they're going probably a little bit smaller than mm -hmm. maybe what we're used to for right. drainage. And so 
employing vacuum, I think, is absolutely necessary. Absolutely, I, I agree. Um, I think that seems to be probably the the, the world, the universal kind of um, challenge thing that you, you, you run into is just drainage. You know, um, flooding the surg surgical field, he already has a small surgical field to begin mm -hmm. with. Yeah. And um, hope, hopefully getting good, uh, good arrest so you're not having to stop because those cases will absolutely end up being longer, probably cross clamp or pump times versus your normal standard case. And depending on how, how intense the procedure is and what, what, what they're doing for straight uh, AVR or MBR. Well, and I think that too, um, you know, depends on the uh, experience of the surgeon. Absolutely. Of course, you know, the more often they're able to do these cases, the quicker they're going to get. Um, I know in uh, my previous employment, uh, we did mitral valves and aortic valves very regularly, really? yes. But, you know, we had um, a surgeon that did these all the time. This was what he did every single day. And so uh, it was very quick. And, uh, you know, the more t you get to do it, the more skilled you often become. But the number one um, complaint was always drainage. Always drainage, yeah. It just, it just stands to reason. These patients postoperatively tend to do a little bit better, more quickly. Mm -hmm. They tend to come out of their general anesthesia a little bit more quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, recovery time faster. Recovery right. time, yeah. Recovery that, time. I have read some, um, a lot of literature, and the average recovery time uh, comparatively was five to seven days versus nine to 12 days. So. Wow. Uh, in, the, in, in the hospital, and that's a pretty incredible amount of time. They also seem to have less postoperative pain because mm -hmm. the incision is smaller. It can be a little bit more localized, and uh, they tend to uh, pop off the vent a little bit more quickly, too, from what I'm noticing. Yes, usually within a couple hours is what they try to do. So. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Discussion? I uh, don't know when we're going to be doing minimally invasive mitral valves, but that's that's going to be interesting to see that. I'm looking yeah. forward to that as the next step, and uh, I'm sure that's coming. Our surgeons are very progressive, mm -hmm. and I'm sure uh, we'll be doing those for two months longer. Right. Well, in my previous um, job, when I first graduated out of perfusion school, one of my jobs, we did uh, robotic mitral valves. Oh, yeah. So those are very complex. They were 7.30 start cases, and we didn't finish till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. But as he began to do more cases and got uh, much more skilled and more familiar with um, approaches and how to do things, then um, we were probably able to finish maybe about 2.30, 3, 3.30. So about an eight-hour eight case, six to eight-hour mm -hmm. cases. But, you know, you have a lot of other things that are involved. Um, depending, you know, nowadays, you know, we, a lot of doctors are using Del Nido, which is great because you give, right. you know, um, cardioplegia one time and then mm -hmm. you're, you're good for the case. Versus um, when I did it back then, which was eight, six, eight years ago, um, we were, you, yeah, you would redose anagray and then you would have to give coronary sinus through the, through the, um, through the IJ, through a sinus catheter. Mm -hmm. And you would have to have multiple pressures monitoring because then when you give an anagrade, then you have the endo clamp, which they used to use for anti-grade. Um, right. It might be called something, I think it's called Hartport now. Yes, but, that's um, correct. Yeah, that's my but, first experience yeah. with those as well. It Same would migrate. Thing. It would migrate as mm -hmm. you give um, cardioplegia. Mm -hmm. So oh. the pressures allow you to, to, to know where the, the, cannula, the cannula is, if it's in the right spot or whatnot. And with that particular um, 
device, you have to have a lot of, uh, you have to have support from the anesthesia team because there's separate training for that because they're the ones who are putting that in. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a lot absolutely. more challenges. Those are very complex cases. Yeah. And speaking from an old scrub uh, tech position, what I did many, many years ago before I got into perfusion, uh, the instrumentation is all different too. The, mm -hmm. uh, the external retractors, which are, which are not sternal at all, they're, they're like they're mini sternum, or they're uh, specially made just for the thoracotic approach, and as well as the cross clamp, as well as uh, all of the uh, instrumentation for putting in the sutures is completely different. So there's a little bit of a learning curve there for the surgeon too to get used to all those things. Mm -hmm. and, I just don't see how they do it working in that tight space. It's really, really difficult, <laughs> but uh, they're getting really, really good at it. So, and uh, they're they're a good uh, diversion and a little bit different way of doing things that you that you've always done right. with a traditional mm -hmm. AVR with uh, mm -hmm. astronomy. Well, you know, mm -hmm. you have all these companies now which are you know developing and innovating all the new technologies and different instrumentation for these minimally invasive procedures from what. You know, you said started 1990, was it? 96. 96. Mm -hmm. I mean, compared to now, I mean, it's probably, you know, cut times and, you know, uh, techniques and enhance all the capabilities that, you know, what they did. Well, I think the overall opinion within the uh, medical community has changed as well. They see that this is the way things are going, that mm -hmm. this isn't just... Uh, you know, some for you, cosmetic. Yeah, or right. Exactly. But that this is actually benefiting the benefiting the patients as well as you know the overall mm -hmm. um, hospital environment. Could either of you, since you've had a little bit more experience with this in your past than I have, uh, can you speak to uh, the situation when you're doing a redo sternotomy, and the choice is to go with a minimally invasive approach? Do you see that that is that that is able to be done, and if so? Do you see that there's less time and less, uh, you know, possible deleterious effects from mm -hmm. reopening the sternum again? Can you gain access that uh, through the thoracotic approach? Mm -hmm. uh, have you had a chance to see that? I actually don't recall a case like that. What about you? Yeah, I can't either. Um, I, I would imagine a, a redo case like that could be could be problematic getting in and having good visual because you just don't know what kind of adhesions you yeah. you would see under the chest wall right. even yeah. trying to make a small incision right. you know four to six centimeters and being able to see and actually perform the procedure I mean um, it could probably be done but I hadn't had the experience to, to yeah, have I don't think we've done a reduced a reduced that approach for so minimum, minimum maybe minimum we'll minimum. talk to Dr. Matoria when he gets yeah. here mm. about and what maybe the challenges he may face on that right, right. that's excellent. excellent okay all right excellent. Okay, we're going to have a five-minute break. 15-minute. Excuse me, a 15-minute break. And uh, we'll join us back then when, when we get back on. Thank you. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, for the next part of our program, I'm going to reintroduce Mr. Min Tran, and he's going to speak to us about protecting the angiovac patient. So you guys have already uh, seen our um, talk and lecture uh, from Peter earlier about the angiovac system, uh, basically just providing veno-veno uh, pump access to extract the uh, thrombus. Uh, in this case here, uh, I'm gonna talk about briefly and show how we, um, how we were able to actually convert and create a hybrid angiovac circuit with an ECMO in, in, in an event where if we had any problems, then we can 
uh, provide ECMO oxygenation through via angiovac circuit. Here's a, one of the cases we did. You, you have a large thrombi just bouncing around in the right atrium. And then here's another one, another case we also did uh, where the thrombus was uh, just jumping around in the right atrium. And, you know, that could be devastating, you know, if that were to get dislodged and uh, going anywhere uh, into, into the circulatory system. Um, uh, it could lead to immediate RV failure if it went into the RV. Um, if that throt, if any clots were to break off, uh, and went into the pulmonary system, you can uh, develop a saddle PE, um, hypoxia, uh, leading to anoxia. Um, if it went into the, the circulatory system, anywhere else, uh, you would have, you, you could lose perfusion, uh, blood perfusion anywhere and uh, reduce hemodynamics and that could cause death. Um, in rational, we have a case here where uh, a 47 year old man with the history of asthma and current tobacco abuse, uh, with one week worsening upper respiratory system, was diagnosed with influenza and common, uh, concomitant e, e. coli pneumonia. He developed worsening gas exchange and was placed on VV ECMO at a hospital on day four. The patient became acutely hypotensive and acute signs of right ventricular strain on the electrocardiogram and a new, uh, a new troponin, uh, troponin T elevation to 2.2 was, was also shown. An echo was demonstrated in a large, highly mobile thrombus uh, extending from the ECMO cannula into the inferior vena cava and uh, into the right atrium. Um, and in this case, um, the patient had to uh, get converted uh, into, onto an ECMO circuit uh, with the angiovac system um, with extracting from the, from the right IJ and into the uh, back into the femoral, the femoral artery, and they were able to successfully get this clot out. Um, and that's a picture of the, uh, the as being aspirated before the, um, in the echo, the, with the thrombus, in, in, um, before the, before the, the uh, angiovac case, and then post. Rational case two, uh, this, in this particular case, this is an interesting case. They used a modified cardiopulmonary bypass circuit uh, with the reservoir uh, for us to suction out uh, um, uh, emboli with the angiovac de device. Um, the, the angiovac device was designed to suck the emboli uh, with the extracorporeal circulatory support circuit. Um, the reason they used uh, full reservoir was they wanted to have the availability in case they needed to go on full bypass uh, because the patient was a high risk. Um, so. Obviously, in an event like this, um, depending on your program, uh, most hospitals don't have, aren't all 3.8s tubing, so they had to make a few conversions to convert from 3.8s to 3.8s half uh, connectors. Um, and what we're looking at here, uh, they actually created a bridge also uh, from the access site uh, into the IJ to the reinfusion site, um, and that just allows them to be able to prime and circulate the uh, circuit um, pre and post bypass. So um, here in the picture, um, you have access from the IJ, and they created a Y 
which splits and um, the Y, one Y goes into the venous reservoir, uh, which you, if you were to go on full CPB bypass, you would go that route. The other Y, but, but in, the, in a normal case without having to emergently go on bypass, you would, after you would prime the loop, you would clamp that off and the, y, the other Y uh, allows you to go through via uh, um, embolus trap for the angiovac and uh, there's also another Y that cr they created, two Ys actually, where you're able to, um, to prime and use that, that other line as a bridge in case if you did not want to use a trap and you just wanted to go on just regular support or to, in case you needed to change out the trap as well. Um, and that um, delivers blood flow right back into the pump. Um, bypassing the reservoir where there's also an additional wire where you could clamp off um, and that would just give you uh, VV angio, angiovac um, support. Um, and in the event if you had to go, but this would only give you VV ECMO support and if you wanted to go VA then you would have to convert and um, add an additional cannula into the femoral artery. Uh, so this is a recent case we did. Um, and uh, the patient uh, did very well. Um, we, uh, we were able to successfully get the thrombus out. It was in the right atrium, and uh, it happened within uh, a minute of going on. Um, sometimes it could be that fast, depending on the location of the thrombus. Um, we did not have to go on ECMO bypass, so, uh, but we had it uh, cut in. So um, in this picture, it's kind of hard to see, so I'll kind of show you a better uh, illustration of what we did. Um, so this is a more simplified uh, non-CPB uh, pump circuit. Um, basically, you have your uh, access going into the IJ, um, and you would uh, where you see the clamp. That's just a bridge where we actually use uh, to um, to to prime the circuit, and we would use that access route if we wanted to go on uh, a bypass for for uh, ECMO support. Um, so if you follow the blue arrows, uh, it goes through the filter, uh, through, through the top of the filter, distal towards the bottom, into the pump, um, through the pump, um, bypassing the oxygenator, uh, where we also have uh, two additional wires that are clamped off using 3 8 wires connector. And um, we would obviously have it primed and ready to go. Um, and if you follow the, the arrows, that will lead you right back into the femoral artery access site for a normal angiovac uh, VV, VV uh, circuitry. Um, and here it is again. This is uh, showing you where we actually, if we had to go on ECMO, VV ECMO, we have already clamped off the uh, angiovac site, and now we're going uh, ECMO support. Actually, this is actually still allowing us to do VV ECMO, but still debris at the same time, simultaneously. So as you can see, we still have the clamp along the bridge uh, distal to the, uh, the bubble, the, the trap filter. Um, now in the event if you, uh, if you wanted to bypass the filter and did not uh, wanted to abandon the angiovac procedure or you were done and the patient uh, became hemodynamically unstable and you needed to go on VA support, um, you would just clamp out the filter and uh, clamp out uh, the line that bypasses the oxygenator, opening your oxygenator line, and, and then convert to VA, obviously uh, with an uh, exchange cannula 
for a, at a VA at a femoral artery site. Um, and it's very simple. Um, it doesn't take uh, but a few minutes to really set up and, and, and make your connections. Uh, the angiovac circuit does not come with uh, the, the connectors, but you would just need three, four, three, eight wide connectors and possibly some additional tubing depending if you need it length for the procedure, um, depending on where, how you wanted to set it up. But very simple to use, um, very simple, safe, and at the end of the day, uh, I think having it available and ready for high risk uh, would save you a lot of trouble than having an additional ECMO circuit, you know, in the room taking up space because you you're already ready to go. And any questions? Some. <clears throat> really good. Thank God for the 3H, 3H, 3H wide connector. We would be out of business if we didn't have that That's right. That jewel, let me tell you. Very interesting. I, I, I like the fact that uh, the forethought of the team was there to prepare for this eventuality instead of getting themselves into that problem and having mm -hmm. to do something emergent. The fact that you had it all set up mm -hmm. and ready to go, that with just uh, you know removing a few clamps, you could, you could put the patient on. Uh, the ECMO circuit and everything. Um, very, very good. Um, should you have to also, good thing about it is, if you wanted to go VA ECMO, as soon as you got a arterial cannula in, it's just another quick connection right into there if you had to, mm -hmm. so it wouldn't take much, take long to put them on VA if you right. decided that that's what they needed in the, in the quick post-op period. Great, great and, and a lot of times these, you know, these patients, you know, we, we you know, will typically anticoagulate them, you know, as if, you know, it's an ECMO case or uh, a bypass, you know, a, a, a small bypass case. So um, you could just get arterial access initially to begin with if you know it's going to, if you think it's going to be a very high risk and you're thinking you might have to convert, then you can get the access, leave the cannula in um, and, and do the procedure. And then um, if once you get the clot out, you could just pull the cannulas and you know close close the groin from there. Yeah. And I, I could see that uh, being with our surgeon that we work with, and I'm sure Dr. Matoyer did this case, that he's so uh, forward thinking that he would have he would have done that. Right. Uh, he's a very careful surgeon and uh, thinks of all the possible uh, scenarios that could develop and go from there. Actually, you always want to be uh, ahead of it and and be prepared because um, you never know with these cases. Um, both uh, the few cases that I have done um, have been good, and I have not had to go on full ECMO so support. So you haven't had to Convert. utilize it no, yet? I have not had to utilize That's it yet. Great. But, you know, I've had it on hand and ready. So, you know, it's just a matter of changing, changing your clamps and, um, and turning your gases on and initiating bypass and uh, ECMO bypass, and, you know, you have full support. You've uh, probably done the most of these cases, man, the angiovac cases. Have you ever run into a situation where the filter is not big enough yeah. to handle all the clot? You know, I have not. We've, I've, uh, the cases I've done, we've only had to use one filter. And I, um, I remember earlier. Um, and that's a Terumo filter, a, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. It is Terumo. Yeah. Terumo. Yeah. 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 I remember uh, earlier talking um, in Peter's talk, he He's had to use multiple filters, but those for like DVT cases. Right. So I guess maybe uh, the thrombi might have been maybe not all intact, possibly, or maybe um, sometimes they were in different regions of the iliac or the femoral, or depending on where they were getting the 
you know, IBC or SVC, depending on where they were snagging the, the clot from. Mm -hmm. um, but I, we've, we've, I've always been able to get away with just using one. Um, and that uh, I'm not exactly for sure how much uh, volume that filter is, but I'd imagine it, it, hold, it can hold a pretty big clot. Um, size, it seems, the yeah. case we did, the clot that we pulled out was probably about five or six inches long, and it was it's just a long, yeah, it was, and it was, it's, it's amazing, you know, that someone could even walk around and survive, you know, for a, an amount of time with that, you know, in their, in their right atrium. Right, now, right. is your experience with these only with a uh, cardiovascular surgeon, or are you also, uh, have you done any with, uh, in a vascular situation? Um... They've all been cardiovascular. I have not done any vascular cases yet. Mm. But I, I, I would love and be interested to see one. It would mm -hmm. be great to see one. I'm just wondering, as far as staffing for the, the actual operation of the angiovac mm -hmm. um, pump portion, are they always staffing perfusionists even when it's not cardiovascular surgeons? That's kind of what I was interested. The, uh, I've done uh, two angiovac cases in both times. Yeah, the, the perfusionists were there. Uh, you know, we obviously know the pumps and mm -hmm. we know how important it is to uh, when to turn it on, when to turn it off. Mm -hmm. And obviously, when you, well, like I said uh, in my earlier st statements in the earlier talk, is once you have ensnared that clot, you do not want anything mm -hmm. to uh, come undone or you're to turn you don't want to stop your flows. Down. You don't want to stop your flows because you lose that suction. And all of a sudden now you've had a clot that was fixed some way, somewhere. And now, now it's free. You, now it's free and free flowing. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And, then, and you can imagine just the negative pressure that, you know, the pump creates, you know, when you suck that clot out. Um, imagine if you suck some of it and then and it, it, it breaks apart, breaks apart. Right. you know and you don't want that because but if you keep it going and if it breaks apart and you still got the pump going the negative pressure is going to continue to vortex the clot into the cannula mm -hmm. right right mm -hmm. right uh, I, I wish i would remember this question earlier uh to pete but uh, i noticed there's always a section when uh on a pie chart that shows the other yeah I'm what is the other interested in what the other <laughs> is you know <laughs> And I'm wondering, do you, either of you know, has this ever been utilized to extract like a left atrial myxoma or, excuse me, not a, a right atrial myxoma? I don't know. You know, I could, I would imagine that it, it would be possible. Um, you know, there's always the myxomas, they've always got that little stem. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not yeah, what it, would it happen creates with How detrimental that would be. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, in his lecture, he, he mentioned that they use them for um, uh, endocarditis cases, right. and you know, pulling the those are attached. The masses right. are attached. Right. So yeah. you know, I, I would I, I, I was kind of curious, you know, how how um, efficient and effective it is to be able to get you know all of the endocarditis off of it, and how do you know if there's not still any any there? Right. You know. Um, well, maybe somebody out in the audience has had experience with some of those other types of cases. Right. Are the phone lines open? The phone lines are open, and we want to mention that. And if you would like to phone in and ask a question of uh, the panelists, please do so. It should be on your, your screen, so please feel free to do that if you'd like. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. I tell you, the myxomas, one last uh, uh, comment about that. Uh, it's, it's funny. Most, most of the things we're pulling out tend to be clot. Uh, not so much in the way of tissue. Mm -hmm. So I just don't know whether or not the uh, vacuum catheter, extraction catheter, 
is set to be able to actually withdraw more of a fibrinous uh, situation other than a clot. It's a, it's a but, question but, we'll and, have to and ask. I, and I wonder maybe, maybe the, um, the way it's designed and the way the thromus formation is, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this at all, but um, maybe possibly because the thrombus is, you know, basically just a clot formation. Right. Maybe um, the way it, it cleaves or breaks off from whatever it's attached to um, makes it easier to come off mm -hmm. versus, you know, where it does not damage the tissue of the heart. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, you know, you were, you know, I was kind of thinking about that too, like pulling an endocarditis off a, a valve leaflet. Yeah, well, you know, damage? are you going to like damage the cordae? Right. Or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. right. So, I mean, that. I, I, that would have been a good question for, um, for Pete. Uh, yeah, I wish I would have thought of it. Mm -hmm. I did not, but we, we can always reach him and we can, absolutely. We can uh, get that question answered absolutely, for us. Absolutely. Um, and then they also use it for pacemaker. Um, and, and, and lead removal. Yeah, uh, extractions. Infections right. too. Yeah. Right. So that's, um, that's just a, a, no, a whole other, you know, category of like, you know, um, challenges, you know, that you may and probably... And it seems like that's a really growing field with right. those numbers that he said. Right. What was it, uh, a million oh, a year? Yeah, a million. I think 1.4, if I remember my numbers. Yeah, 1.4, right. That's right. a yeah. lot of, right. lot of people a lot. with a lot of potentiality for these to develop clots and, uh, mm -hmm. and um, you know... I've, well, you know, you hear about it all the time, too. You know, like, um, I remember we, we've, had, we've had a patient, I think, that we had to put on VA ECMO because they had some issues with the infective pacemaker lead, you know, case. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, obviously they didn't use uh, Angiovac for mm -hmm. that particular case. But right. the patient needed ECMO support post, you know, hemodynamic instability and, mm -hmm. um, but, um, but yeah, that's interesting that, you know, the, the growing number of, you know, the challenges and um, needs for, you know, the uses for, you know, having Angiovac for those cases. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it'd be interesting if we ever see one or get to do one ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that'd be great, that'd be great. Okay. Yeah, we're trying to get Peter on the phone, too. Oh, are you? Okay, wonderful. We're going to try to get Pete back on the phone to uh, ask him some of these other questions, and we'll go from there. Um, any last comments, uh, suggestions? Anything about uh, Angivac that is uh, new and on the horizon as far as, you know, I'd, I would like to see its application somehow eventually to, to work for uh, small area arterial clots mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, you're reversing the flow when you do that because now you've got in an arterial tree, but it'd be, I bet you before too much longer, there'll be some type of instances that they're gonna utilize it in to extract out arterial that'll clots. Be, that'll be interesting, that'll be interesting. Be interesting. I would like to see that if it, if it ever develops. Okay. Do you wanna do your deal? Yes, oh, yeah. we shall. Okay, uh, what we're going to do at the present time is we're going to uh, have the show of the utilization of the actual angiovac machine itself and we're going to try our best to mimic what the surgeons and the cardiologists and interventional radiologists and, and anybody else that, uh, is going to be doing these cases and that's the interesting thing about it is uh, Pete said earlier there's going to be a lot of people involved with this uh, depending upon their patient and uh, and who their primary physician Seems is. Seems like it'd be very widely used. Right. Widely used by a lot of different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we will move forward with that. Okay. Okay, man, it should be all in really good shape. Okay.
I'm just going to got everything down there. Yeah, I'm going to go to just start the pump. This is in tight. And just make sure everything is good and tight. Okay. Okay, we're going to start our uh, demonstration now. We're going to utilize the bowl as the patient uh, with its intervascular volume. We have a line that comes out, goes into negative force into our can, uh, into our filter here. This is what's obviously going to trap the thrombus. And then we're going to pump it back in, and it's going to go, of course, the uh, positive pressure side past the centrifugal head back into the patient to com complete our circuit. So the first thing you want to do when you uh, get to this situation is make sure, obviously, everything is primed. Communication is the key on this. We're dealing with a VV ECMO circuit, and uh, utmost care and attention to the lines uh, because, as you well know, uh, an ECMO circuit is the e one of the easiest ways to entrain air and uh, provide an air embolus where we're trying to help the patient not hurt them, so do no harm, correct? Okay, so what we're going to do, we've got everything primed and ready to go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the clamps off here, off of our filter. We're going to turn the pump on at about two liters, and we're going to let that pump for a while. This is what the perfusionist can have ready uh, and done. And uh, great care and communication with the scrub tech up on the field. Uh, we've got some very good ones that we work with, and they're very knowledgeable about putting patients on ECMO, so they've got a good working knowledge of what line is what and what we need to do. We had a great crew about that. So what we're going to do, we're going to start it out. We're going to pump about three liters, and this is just to make sure that uh, everything's working right, there's no air. I don't know if you can see in the top of this, but we have a little bit of air entrained in the top of the filter that is required as we do this, as you can see right here, and uh, that will provide area for expansion of the fluid as we withdraw our clot into the circuit. So when everything is ready to go, we've identified the clot, and we've got our extraction catheter in place, then at that point, what the uh, surgeon or the doctor of record will ask us to do is to turn our flows up to a very high volume, a very high RPM, I mean, and we're going to make sure that as long as the um, clinician is going to be sucking out this clot that we keep this pump running. The most important thing, failure to do so can create a free-floating embolus and thrombus from that which has been so far fixed to an object and now we're going to take it off that object and keep it uh, attached to our catheter. So now we will go ahead and show you how we pull the clot out and we'll have two cameras and men will utilize the one down the bottom to suck the clot into the camera and then we'll see the uh, thrombus being deposited up in our catch filter. And as you can see how Mike increased the flows on the pump, that increased uh, the negative vortex and pressure within the, the, the fluid. So you can see the, the, the blue clot here tethering, and it just sucked one clot in. Yeah, and now it's a, and then here's another one. Excellent, excellent. That's exactly the way the cases are done. 
They tend to be almost that fast. Of course, it all depends on how much clot you have in there. But uh, that was a, a two-tiered clot that we had. So now we will turn our suction, uh, our uh, pump flow off. We'll clamp our lines. And now we can see at the top of the clot we were able to uh, extract from the patient, uh, depending upon what it is. And that, in a nutshell, is how the angiovac works. And in the event, if this wasn't your basic angiovac circuit setup and you had an oxygenator ECMO slash ECMO sliced in, uh, we would have a bridge going from this line, the, um, the access site from the IJ, to the distal tubing part of the trap, uh, which would have a bridge where you could actually clamp off your lines and open the bridge, allowing you to flow from, from straight from the patient through the centrifugal head and beyond here, you could just uh, y, y in uh, oxygenator, your ECMO oxygenated membrane, and, and then you could just go on, on, on ECMO and clamp off. So um, this, that's how simple it, it could be. Um, but this is just your standard uh, angiovac setup. Thank you, Mike. Excellent. So we're going to take a 30-minute break? Yeah. I think a 30-minute break sounds okay. good. Okay. Uh, after the demonstration, we are fortunate to have uh, Mr. Basha and uh, Dr. Matoria come to join us on the second part of our uh, program today. And uh, they're finishing up an angiovac case, as we said earlier. So I'm sure they'll have a lot of good anecdotal information for us and are looking forward to their discussions about the, their case today when they get here. Uh, they're about 30 minutes away, so we are going to take a full 30-minute break, uh, and we'll see you back in 30 minutes. Thank you. And welcome back to uh, PerfWeb 26. Uh, we have been joined on our panel by Mr. Joe Basha and Dr. Mark Matoyer, who just completed an Angiovac case. How apropos, right? That's unbelievable. That's uh, unbelievable. unbelievable how that happened. So I am uh, very happily going to relinquish the moderatorship back to Mr. Basha. So everyone enjoy. I don't know that I want it. Okay. <laughs> you know, have you enjoyed it? Has it, it been fun? It's been fun. Okay, good. I've got, the, I've got my YouTube back up, and I'm excited. And hi, everyone. And everyone on Facebook and uh, and Twitter and all that stuff that we do. But anyway, okay. So we're here getting ready for this show, and I got a call from this man to my right, Dr. Matoyer, with, dude, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> and I said, shoot, can we do an emergency angiovac case? I was like, come on, are you serious? You're kidding me. I mean, I didn't know if he was kidding. I really didn't know if he was kidding or not. So with that said. You obviously work. I do kid, but that but wasn't kidding, kidding on that. No. Mm -mm. So how do you want to do this? You want to you want to talk about that case first, and I think we just sent the videos that from that case. We'll talk about the first couple, the first and couple then give David a couple time minutes just for the pictures, and then we'll just kind of go, go into the third one. Yeah. Okay. The so last David, one. are you good with that? Yeah. What? what we we sent we sent we texted it to you. 
We'll proceed with this as is with the slides, and yes. then if you're able to get those images we sent from the case we did a few minutes ago, that we, we can talk about that. If not, no big deal. So this first case, uh, we'll give a case, the first two cases and- Here, hold on one second. Are you guys gonna set the cameras up so that it's on him and his slides and stuff? Are we, like we're are we going to his slides right now? Yeah, and then I, we sent you a link so you can get the case we just did. Live TV. Live TV. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> that's what makes it fun is it's live. See, everybody out there in the audience needs to understand that's what makes this program unique is we we put it out there. It's like the demonstration. We wouldn't want to suck air in a case. No. And we try really hard not to. <laughs> but it shows people that this is live. We, we thought about FaceTiming it, but... We didn't oh, get consent from the family, yeah, so we were fun. pretty excited, but. Exactly. Yeah. So are we ready to go, guys? Yeah. With his slides? Yeah, his slides. Let's, let's do it. All right, there you go. All right. So this uh, first case, um, these are Angiovac cases. And for those of you that are not familiar with uh, Angiovac, um, basically this, for me, has helped remove a lot of decision making in the, this particular class of patient when I get the phone call in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning, massive PE, patient's still alive, dilated right heart, what do we do? And um, uh, at first when uh, the technology was out because we weren't um, checked off on it, so to speak, it was kind of an ordeal to get set up, shipment in, uh, clinical um, instructors here. So now that we've done quite a few cases, uh, we have it on the shelf and uh, several perfusionists that are uh, adept at starting this up, especially since we do quite a bit of ECMO. So um, in this, so we'll start with this first case. This is uh, uh, actually started, this te technology started with a couple of friends of mine um, that I trained with down at Texas Heart, just the idea of it. Um, and uh, and since then, it's advanced into this wonderful piece of technology that has really added to better patient outcomes, the ones you can operate on for massive PE or right heart uh, disease, uh, such as catheter-related infections, mobile uh, endocarditic valves of the tricuspid, pulmonary, et cetera. And um, so let's go to the cases. So this first case, 36-year-old uh, male presented with tachycardia, uh, he was 6'5", 350 pounds, and it was not a distributed 350 pounds. It was all truncal. Um, so he was a big guy. So we know how those go um, as far as their recovery afterwards uh, from a sternotomy. Uh, his most recent history was within the past month. He had had uh, septic left shoulder arthritis um, and uh, had to have it drained. Well, he was being treated in preparation for future orthopedic surgery and had a pick line in place and just presented not feeling well and had tachycardia. Well, he had a atrial fibrillation by echocardiogram and um, by EKG. Well, they got an echocardiogram, which showed um, a large whipping uh, mass that was about a centimeter in diameter and basically like a snake uh, flipping in and out of the tricuspid valve likely catheter associated. Uh, because he was on antibiotics, it was not an infected uh, catheter, but um, I suspect with his atrial fibrillation, um, 
probably because of just being ill and large and overweight um, and being stressed uh, that contributed to his uh, thrombus formation. So he's already kind of a uh, hypercoagulable setup to begin with. So I was consulted. He was in the hospital three days prior to surgery. Um, long story short, prep for surgery, uh, including uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, to include a cardiotomy with mass removal. The plan was, however, obviously to do the angiovac, which return flows through a small arterial cannula in the femoral vein. And obviously you got to check venous dopplers of both lower extremities to figure out which one uh, is accessible. And if those aren't accessible because you got DVTs in both of those, you got to talk about another inflow area, um, such as the maybe the left internal jugular vein or subclavian or some other uh, area. So next slide. So this is uh, in, in preparation for uh, placing the angiovac. You have to have fluoroscopy. Uh, you can see the um, uh, TEE probe already down. He's prepped out just like you would say for an isolated aortic valve or mitral valve, except you got to expose the neck a little bit because um, that's going to be your return, I mean, your uh, inflow cannula to the uh, ECMO circuit. Basically, it's an ECMO circuit, and that's the way we prepare it, and I think did we talk about that in the previous? We did. Uh, so we're prepared for VA ECMO in case this, God forbid, breaks off or if they just need uh, full uh, cardiac support along with um, oxygenation. We can also just, if they need oxygenation, uh, convert to a VV cannula if their cardiac performance is fine and they don't need offloading. I'm going to flip back and forth on these slides. So you can actually see the tip here of this uh, sheath. It's a 27, is that correct? Dry sheath? Yes. So you got a big hole in the IJ there. Um, and that's the radiopaque marker. It's a gore dry seal. Uh, it's a little bit long. I don't particularly care for the long ones, but that's what uh, they recommend. Uh, we do have some shorter ones uh, available. Um, and that shows it. You don't want to put it too far in, which we almost did today. Um, because uh, we had all the lights on for filming and couldn't really see the tip of the uh, angiovac. So quickly, this is the TEE version. And that's a video, you know. You, right. you got it. You this got a plan. is the Good. TEE version. Yep, David's got me set up. Great. I don't have to think too much, which is the way I like it. Um, and let's go again, play it again. So you can see this uh, serpentine mobile mass in the um, right atrium into the right ventricle. We um, uh, place the right femoral cannula first to return the blood, flush it, et cetera, have the pump set up, and then we start with the right side. Now the care, right IJ, the care you have to make here is, and take, is watching the wire, making sure you don't enter the heart if, you, if at all possible, which we did today, fortunately, that it, nothing broke off. Uh, because she was so massive. Do you think this guy was big? This lady was 4'8 and had a BMI of 51 today, so she was all uh, uh, obese above the inguinal ligament. And safely put that in, and now we're ready to go. So we prime the uh, <clears throat> inflow, limb, inflow limb, which you've seen earlier today, and then insert it through the dry sheath uh, to just where the pedals or the distal part of the angiovac come in. And then we've had a case, and we'll show you the next one, but the, the blow up using an insufflator like you use for angioplasty of stents, et cetera, and you can see it on uh, the film to open up the end to make it more receptive to clot.
So here's another view of it going through the tricuspid, whipping in and out, in and out. And this guy, fortunately, had not had a PE yet. Most of these people have had some pulmonary emboli break, um, uh, break off and or form on the end of the organized clot and give them PEs. That's how they'll usually present is short of breath or chest pain. So this is a specimen removed. Um, two large pieces, you can see there are casts of uh, likely the iliofemoral system. I mean, not, not, not of the iliofemoral system, of the catheter itself with some component um, of a, probably an asgus vein or tertiary branch or secondary branch off of the superior vena cava. And then the filter itself uh, after being flushed and the specimens inside. When you're finished flushing and returning 95% of the blood back to the patient, again, blood conservation. We don't need to use cell saver because we basically uh, return everything back to the patient. When you finish the case, you literally pull the cannula out of the neck, make sure the dry seal, the uh, balloon's inflated in the sheath itself, and that way you don't have blood loss through the sheath while you're literally holding it up like a bong and draining it into the pump, and then they return it through the femoral access and then flush it, and then that's this part here is done on the back table, uh, so you can see the specimen in the filter and remove it. All right, is this this is the same one, or is this the next case? Not the same one. So here are just other uh, views of that. This is afterwards. So this is a before, similar angle with the TEE, after. And so it's, it's pretty amazing too. I mean, sometimes it's like. You turn it on and where to go. I mean, it's literally that quick. Today was a little bit interesting because you could tell it had snared it because part of the cast or the clot was not moving uh, and the more distal end was, and it was a, quite a large one too because it was oh, probably yeah. in the well, shape. Cause, yeah, because uh, it was uh, the iliac vein. You can obviously tell it was the iliac vein because it was much bigger and the catheter had a hard time pulling it through, but you just got to persist. Another view, uh, more of the right ventricle pulmonary outflow, nice and clean. I've had some in the past where there was a clot on the tricuspid valve itself that was organized and you had to steer it to the annulus and get it, but uh, there's all kinds of things you can do uh, with that. So the mass and or thrombus, which is basically ended up being thrombus associated with the pick line was successfully removed. Uh, the pick line was then removed because um, you probably have a nidus still there of some sort of clot formation. Uh, need to anticoagulate the patient because uh, he, he still had to have long-term antibiotics. Uh, he ended up getting another one the next day. Um, and, but real briefly, as you can see here, and I showed the example of when he was admitted was the 17th, basically waiting for a product and support to do the case on the 20th, three days later, uh, and then discharged on the 22nd. Um, anticoagulated, atrial fibrillation was corrected now that we have the clot out and we can treat him, uh, placed on um, antibiotics and sent home. He's done well. This next case, this lady was more of what you would kind of expect. This is the other extreme of the uh, spectrum, a 48-year-old female in and out of the hospital multiple times this past uh, year early on and presented on uh, uh, May the 6th uh, with a seizure. Uh, she had been previously admitted in rehab with seizures um, and so everybody thought this was a seizure. What had happened was she was being ambulated for the first time in three weeks um, because she was so weak from uh, critical illness, polyneuropathy, and her seizures, et cetera. 
and she then had a, quote, another seizure. Well, it ended up being a respiratory arrest is what it was because she had bilateral really significant PEs. Uh, her right heart is extremely dilated. Uh, there's no saddle pulmonary embolus, but um, after being transferred emergently and worked up, it, they basically worked backwards from a CNS, central nervous system workup, including MRs of the brain, scan, CTs of the brain, et cetera, to um, uh, CT scans of the chest, which show PZ, PEs, and then, then uh, working backwards an echocardi EKG and echocardiogram. Uh, she was intubated in the ED because of her seizure. She couldn't control her airway, which again was her respiratory arrest. The echo showed a severely dilated right atrium and right ventricle and another huge thrombosverse mass. We didn't really understand what it was at the time because she did have a history of some kind of remote uh, malignancy um, over about 50 to 20 years ago. Just the lady looked chronically ill. Uh, I think she had multiple sclerosis as well, a lot of different medical problems. Uh, but regardless, uh, uh, we obtained um, uh, the necessary instrumentation for an angiovac case. And this was at another hospital where we don't have it ready to go and available. So we actually had to, to wait about 36 hours, I think, to get it set up. Uh, she was stable through that. She was a, other than uh, requiring a little bit of high FO2 and um, uh, pretty aggressive fluid resuscitation and anticoagulation. Yeah, we did it on Saturday. We did it on Saturday. Um, and, uh, and the other reason we did it at that particular hospital was they, were going, they could not get her transferred downtown. So at this facility, we do hearts and et cetera, and occasional ECMO, and, but this uh, place, um, they acted like they were on the verge of an experimental discovery. Because they, they loved it. Because they've never seen anything like this. So especially when before, historically, we'd open the chest to do a pulmonary embolectomy or a right atrial, right ventricular thrombectomy. Um, so she was successfully treated. I won't go over the details again. We'll show some slides. We'll show the... Uh, uh, how significant this thrombus was and how kind of really exciting, uh, for lack of a better term, and um, treated successfully. This was the one where <laughs> we actually turned it on uh, low flow, did not open the pedals to the angiovac, and Joe started getting a little nervous because we had absolutely no flow to even start with. <laughs> and I accused him of having the pump. Backwards. <laughs> Not that he's done that before. I think we have an edited video of that. Right, without the four-letter words. Yes. Which they can enjoy. And then, uh, so literally, it, the cannula goes in, the catheter goes in, turn it on, no flow, and then flow, and there's the clock. And there it is. And so, I've never seen anything like it. Happened to us. And we were all high-fiving. It was great. And uh, I'm in the. I'm Lee. I've. I've nearly left. I think I've left the hospital. Well, they called a code because they decided to turn off all of her pressors because she was doing so well and um, instead of weaning them and getting her to the ICU, um, resuscitated her, got her back. They waited another 15 minutes and decided to turn the pressors off again because she was doing so well <laughs> and got her to the ICU this time a little bit longer and she coded again, got her back and I told them don't turn the pressors off yet. Let's kind of one thing at a time here. So uh, now this was, as you would expect, more of a typical type case with RV failure 
or impending failure. It did take her a while to get over it. Uh, she eventually did have a small um, intracranial hemorrhage. We had to stop the anticoagulation. Um, uh, once it was safe, we started again. They thought she might have anoxic encephalopathy, which, you know, neurologists, if they're not uh, in their facility, they're all, you know, brain dead anyway. Mm -hmm and refused to treat him anymore, but she eventually woke up. She had not had a significant deficit and went back to rehab and has been subsequently discharged as follow-up and recovering at home. Still a lot of outpatient uh, rehab, um, but not but from a deconditioning standpoint, not really a stroke standpoint. But she was not a, she was not the most She was not healthy. No, 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 she, she was yeah. seriously ill. This is her. So this is hers. And it looks like a ball of snakes in there. Mm -hmm. It's all, uh, as, as opposed to the other one, which kind of fo followed the catheter mm -hmm. and like a serpentine can you form. Play it, can this, you play that again? I'm, I'm play it again. Oh, you do. Yeah, oh, I got it. You got it. Technology. Okay. I don't know what and this one really wasn't going across the valve, but it was all balled up in the right, right atrium. And, and um, there's the specimen. Mm -hmm. There it is in the filter after we wash it out. Two nice chunks. We had to unwind this. It was actually in several knots. It looked like a big sailor's knot, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. it did. It kind of looked like a big, not that it was a, had any rhyme or reason to it, but that's what it looked like. You got, we got sound? So a little bit of the procedural aspect. Uh, and today we took some video without the lights being um, Dim, so it was a little harder to see the fluoro, fluoro today, but uh, we'll hopefully get that to you guys in uh, a future uh, presentation. <laughs> so the femoral line's already in. That's the easy part. You're going to feel another dip when it goes out through the door drive. Hold on a second, that wire. Live. Into the RV. You actually don't even have to have that wire in there, just as long as you have the dilator. I did that today. Because <laughs> I didn't want the wire into the heart. Mm -hmm. And that sheath's so big, is once you, once you watch it go in, uh, you can start withdrawing the, the dilator as you're pushing it in. You felt that second give? Yeah. Okay, so, so now what we'll do is take the, the dilator and guide wire out. And then we're going to replace this with this clear tui. All right. So okay, get the clear tui on. Get the clear tui ready. Grab both those together. This one right here. No, that one's a lollipop. Mm -hmm. Give that to the doctor. He's going, to, he's going to shove that right back on. So that's Melissa. She's learning. She's loving it. It's her first time to do that. Not her first time to do ECMO, but first time to do this. So this is your stopper here. That's all this is. Make sure basically. We're doing what? So it's like rubbing your tummy and so patting your head at the same time to put it in. Hugged. Yeah, so it should click in. And then we have down everything on the to do. Okay. We saved a few steps today. We didn't do a lot of that sure stuff that today. Clear is also tight. Just go ahead yeah. and uh, yeah, perfect. Good. Good. Okay. Good. All Ready? Right. So take that off. If everybody's comfortable, we can uh, we can go on. Okay. Right, we go on and we stop. Open, see if you can get it back. Get your hands on a little bit. Okay. Fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred is good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Are we didn't put the balloon up, but we can still go on pump. Okay. Into the bladder. 
Put about... Put Turn RPM up some. Okay. Oh, okay. 20,000. Mag up one. Oh. Go toward... Uh, should be. We're gonna go nice and slow. Okay. I don't know. Turn it. Uh, turn it up higher. Are you having problems? Yeah, we're not seeing flow. Okay. I've got everything. This is where I accused Joe of having the pump backwards. Here, it wasn't here. I wasn't here. It's coming. This is going here. This is going there. This is going there. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Turn it up higher. Man. What, what, what are my RPMs yet? Turn the cautery up. Turn the flow up. Turn it up. Turn it up. Now we're going. Okay. I'm going backwards. Yeah. Pull your pull your thing. More power. Either push it in further. Do something. I just did. There's a lot of resistance. What kind of flow do you have? Less than least two negative. It's too negative. It's trapped on something. Well, as we found out today, there's no two negative. Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that or we already got. It was working hard, man. You could see air developing in the in the lines Are you today. Are serious? Yeah, capitating. Turn yeah. it up, man. Turn it up. Okay. <laughs> Good job on the edit. Yes. No, I don't know we had to flow wrong. We had to flow on. That would flow wrong. We've got it. That's what we've got. We've got the clock. No, I can't see anything, but that's got to be what it is. Oh, that was some fun. Those are micro bubbles. Bring your RPMs down a little bit. Yeah, we didn't have micro bubbles. We have macro bubbles. Where are you at? 2,500. I don't care about that error. It'll go right through. 2,500. It doesn't hurt anything. How far up on this? I forget. Don't turn it down. Okay, you're good. Now I'm getting flow. I got five liters. I got flow and, now you're inflating. Give me a light. Five liters. Somebody give me a flashlight. It was, it was oh, academic at that one. No, it was academic, man. It was oh, academic. God. Oh, God. Don't turn your RPMs down, dude. It's up. It's up. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot. Now my flow's went down to one liter. Keep it going. Just yeah. keep, it's still high. Just keep your RPMs up. Yeah. Do you have those prolines? Did you show them? Yes, I have those. Okay, you gotta give me Catherine the proline. Well, that could be. Yes. Not right now, but. We, I, I, I see material in the, in the trap. Right, right there. I see it. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I think we just sucked the fucker out. <laughs> so you never had the flow wrong. Correct. The flow's right. We never had the flow wrong. We had it on. I thought you said on. I thought you said wrong. Not wrong. So where are you from again? You can see it right there. It's like a yin. From my mama. It is not like you said. Anything else go after? Thank you. Thank you. It's right there. No, it can't have clot. It has to come through the filter. Are you flowing at all? Hold on. You can see it in front of it. Um, Mark, the RV is a little dilated, but it, all I see is flow to it. So we're good. What are you flowing? Five liters. Five liters. We can bring the, bring the liters down a little bit. We got a lot of uh, yeah, reducer flow. Yeah, reducer We don't need down. Try to get about three. There's your ECMO charge. So five minutes of full flow. I'm down to 2.5. 
I'm down to one and a half. I'm at one and a half. So in the background, you can see the TE back there looks like a bunch of snow back there. Um, when we were at five liters of flow, that's not air. It's just differences in temperature of the blood. They call it a bubble study, basically. It's, it's just difference in density and temperature. It's not really air. No. Okay, I think we got it. Oh, I think we got it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because it went look at it. It's not there. No, right. you got it. I think, and I already see it. If you can already see the bubble trap now, I can Oh, you see it. Well, look, if you feel, look, let me just flush the bubble trap out. You can see yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's give her blood back. Yeah, let's Okay. Watch the video. Where's the, okay. Listen to the commentary. This way to flush it. Okay. okay. So Anything else here. we want to see on this? We good? Okay. Go ahead. Well, you want to see it when it goes through? Oh, can we fast forward it? Yeah. Can we fast forward? <laughs> Let's fast forward to the specimen. Look, I'm flushing it now. There you go. Oh yeah. There we go. Clearing it out. Yeah. Let's just look in there. So now the. Everybody gets excited. Listen. What? Everybody goes. Oh. Oh my God! You no, know, you can see it on this side. <laughs> I see it right there. Here, right it's right huge. Right here. Oh there, right here. There it goes. Right here, that is big. Yeah, there's the Look at that. Holy. <laughs> Am I the only one that did that? Everybody get excited. Look, there it is. Look at that. That's the part that's great. You did it. Big ass snake. Here, Melissa. She's excited, man. I All think right. that's the end of that video. I think it's the end of your slides. I think so. Okay. All right. So we have some more. Um, well, we did a fungus ball. Can we switch the camera? So we have a camera on. And there's a little technique uh, that they showed me, the, the clinical support. I don't know if it was Mike or not. Um, but basically, you take a proline, like a 2-0 proline. Oh, you want to get you catheter? Yeah, if you don't yeah. mind. Can we zoom in on this magic? Is that going to be possible or not? And you can actually kind of rig this to be able to steer it into the pulmonary off? artery. Yeah. 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 Oh, you have a catheter. Oh, good. Second yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. So, I can't see if we're... You're not zoomed in yet. Is there any way to zoom in on this? Yeah. Okay. Take this out that of the way. This one? Okay. There. You got that magic? Yep. So here's the tip. Here's the pedals that we're talking about and the little balloon inside. So where the black mark is, now you use a needle driver because it's easier, but you actually just put a stitch right through. It has to be a 48 inch, a long one, or a 36. 48 is better. And so if you figure that you're going to have to use this, you'll have to take it back out and then reinsert the catheter back into the dry sheath. So it goes back in the dry sheath with this beside it, and you're holding on to the strings. And so when you go in, you're up here in the neck, you can make the catheter go up and out the pulmonary alpha tract. Now it looks like you want to go that way, but you really kind of want to go more anterior because that's really the direction that it goes and then you, while you're doing that you can guide it and push it without pushing it out of the right ventricle or out of the right atrium um, 
some guys even go into the uh, branches, the main pulmonary artery branches when they do that. Uh, we have not had to do that yet, but that's also in there. And it's just this little simple technique where you, did, you don't ruin the pedals or anything. Again, as we showed in the second video, the uh, meat and potatoes is inside here and can get the clot. The, the flower or the petals is just a, kind of an added nice little version there. So I think that's what causes the, that's what creates essentially the funnel. Right, it may, and correct. It, it sort of, so it draws in, you know, it mm -hmm. gets it to the flow to, to the directional vortex. And little yeah. pieces and et cetera. So, but this little technique here is. Steerable, makes it steerable. Makes it, basically makes it a steerable catheter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just a simple modification that doesn't require a patent change. Mm -hmm. so. Now, Mike, can you tell me, can you tell us, um, are they, do you guys have, I know you have an angled tip. Right. Can can you give Mike a, a, a microphone? Give Mike a mic, so he can uh, he can uh, answer from 20 the audience. Twenty degree, right? I think so. I think it's mm -hmm. twenty degree. That's what they say. Twenty degree, yeah. Hmm. Hello. Thanks. Can you hear me? Okay. What were okay. you asking, Joe? Okay, so the uh, uh, the angle tip that you have. Yes. Um, Tammy thinks it's a 20 degree. It's a 20 right? degree a 20 angle tip, yes. Says. And uh, now, are you coming out with a steerable that can go more of a, an acute angle other than this technique? And those people that you know going into the PA, are they using the already angled with this technique? Like, what are you seeing out there in the world? Um, we are coming out with the Generation 3. Um, it is in it's anticipated to come out soon. Okay. As far as um, the other question, um, that would be better for a clinical specialist, right, really, at this time. Okay. Okay, yeah. that's fine. I mean, what would you think would be more, make more sense to use a an already an already deflected one for the bend or this one? Which which do you think is easier? Because this this seems very malleable, very flexible. Right. And you know. With the wire reinforcement, well, I, I've almost got it bent in half, and it's not kinking. Right, it. I think for probably ninety plus percent of the procedures you'd want to do with this, uh, this this would be fine. If it's got a bend in it, um, and you really maybe could have that bend and be able to steer it more with the angle, and not have to do this modification because it is a little bit cumbersome to reinsert while you're holding the string keep it straight and keep it from bunching up and but it's still not the end of the world if you have to use this to steer it but the one thing and you can again while holding tension you can turn it back and move an oh, anterior yes, I see that uh, left and right and if it's got a little but again this is the whole catheter so if you have it already angled on the end that may be beneficial I mean we'll see mm -hmm. so um, on today's case, not unlike the uh, the one that we did uh, the last time with Min and I, um, we were we captured this one today extremely fast. I mean, we were, it was within just just seconds. Right. And uh, but it but took a lot longer for it to come through. Come through. I mean, it was literally we were thinking about alternatives to removing it and because moving it, was stuck it and in the block. Tip. Right. Is and the other one was to pull it into the sheet itself and then remove the whole thing on block. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you're assuming it's organized, uh, and it was, uh, but it was a little softer than the ones we pulled out it before. It was really ugly. Do we, do we have the pictures 
Can you show the pictures of what we took out today? See, it's obvious, obviously, really yeah, it. obviously this was iliac vein. Uh, yeah. The left iliac vein had a branch off of probably the internal iliac. Yeah, you just show the, just show the one with that on the, on the white towel, I Cause, think. Because the right yeah. femoral system, iliofemoral there system was negative by uh, venous duplex mm -hmm. and she had clot from the left common femoral all the way down. So that's where it broke off. Yes. So. And, and, and which brings up the two points for me, which is the first one was we captured it. We were only flowing a liter and uh, uh, we captured it very quickly. He had inflated the pedals and, before we started flow. And you could tell on the TEE that we had it because whereas the whole thing was moving before, as soon as we initiated it and had no flow, about a third of it just quit moving. Mm -hmm. You could tell it was tethered from another place. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we just gave it time and kept cranking the RPMs up. And, and I got and all we had the some way big bubbles to today. I mean, it was like was it big. All, was it all consolidating in the RA or was it in the RB? Uh, no, it was flipping back and forth flipping across. Back. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it another was going back and forth. It was pretty scary, which brings up my next point. <clears throat> this took us almost three minutes. So I started off at maybe 1,400 RPMs, and then I went yeah. to... 2000 and then I went to 2200 and by the time I got to I went to 3000 rpms wow. that thing was spinning and that's when he was seeing <laughs> was all chugging. of that cavitation yeah, and yeah. actually I had to be really careful because the 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 uh the uh debris trap was the fluid level had dropped down to probably 60 percent mm -hmm. oh, wow. so there was about 40 percent left and i was looking at it going well is that, eh, what's gonna time, happen there yeah, I'm gonna and, it again yeah well, kind of like your reservoir <laughs> or just afraid that i was gonna cavitate mm -hmm. i didn't know what was gonna happen yeah. yeah and then before i really could have a chance to think about it it just the flow well, you just could skyrocketed. No, I, I literally saw it go I through it the, mm -hmm. uh, so you could see it go right right in front of me but it's, wow. Wow. but it's extremely important. That was a huge clot, but it's extremely important that people recognize when you capture something like that, you can you cannot turn the flow down. So that's the last the RPMs down. Almost the worst to a point to where you were losing, you, it was obstructing and you were losing volume. Yeah, that's right? why so you weren't flowing. It was right. It was, it, was sucked, it was cavitating. Yes, it you was You were still to the patient, but you wouldn't get as much correct, volume. Correct, getting nothing. Because it was Right, and I said it toothpasted wow. its way just that, that that constant negative pressure just eventually formed to the tubing and just was once it gets through this piece and gets up here where it starts to get bigger it, it just flies just flies, it flies. Mm -hmm. so and you figured out how to put toothpaste back in the tube today clearly yes okay. that's what we did <laughs> exactly okay. but this brings up i think for me the most important point of all of this is that i don't really believe that it is common, and Mike, you have a mic, so, or Mike, you have a microphone, um, if you wanna add a, into this. I don't really think it's common. Um, it's been published, and Min, you gave a talk on it, I know, earlier, um, and uh, that people have their circuit designed with an oxygenator in line, ready to do either VV ECMO if you needed to, mm -hmm. and continue even with the procedure, just supplemental or something, or and also bypass the debris trap and the oxygenator, or bypass the debris trap and go through the oxygenator. Whichever mm -hmm. that that configuration that we that we yeah. came up with gives you a lot of different options. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, is it common to see that number one? And then I have a question for Dr. Matoya. It's not that common. Right, no. and, but it is published it by is. others, so other people have recognized it. 
how do you feel in terms of your comfort level, knowing you have access, this clot is, albeit, you know, the patient has either walked around with it or got found. So before that, it didn't go into the PA. But today's case, for example, you didn't want to sit on it until 4 o'clock this afternoon. You wanted, or no. 5 o'clock. You were like, we have to do this now. So she's a right. time bomb. Correct. What is the risk of not having ECMO ready right then and there for this thing to go ahead and fly downstream and end up as a saddle block embolus? Well, higher than not having one, but how much time do you think you really have? uh, Well, the answer to your first question, uh, you really don't really know, uh, but it's going to happen. And the way this looked on her transthoracic was pretty scary. And she was obviously had acutely changed in the previous 12 hours and was on high flow oxygen, uh, showing RV strain. So she'd obviously broken some off and had a pretty bad VQ mismatch. Okay, so she had already actually had a PE. Correct. This would have been, do you think this would have been lethal? Had it, had it, had it oh, gone? Yeah. Well, as- lethal in her for sure, 84, morbidly obese, wow. mm-hmm. obstructive sleep apnea, kind of a bad heart anyway. She extremely thick ventricle, uncontrolled hypertension. So, I mean, this was, she certainly wasn't a candidate for open. You know, so this was ideal for her. If she's going to have a chance, I mean, she still may not do well. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Would uh, you rather have? Would you? Well, she's yeah. She's, and I don't want to open her chest. I don't want to put her back together. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, so. Well, I mean, the recovery on that is ridiculous. Well, I mean, the, well, the, and that's just the obvious benefits of this. Uh, the other thing, but to your second question, um, today was kind of one of those where because we were trying to uh, get better video of the clinical part doing it, doing the case, um, I couldn't really see very well the, um, the fluoroscopy images. So the catheters actually went into the RA. Mm-hmm. And so if it had broken it off, I mean, VA ECMO is essential at that point to offload the right heart, keep it from completely failing, and also to oxygenate the patient. And if I have to crack her chest and get in, if you don't have that available, it's, she she wouldn't have had any chance. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Certainly, so if you got a young person, you want to have. There, there's no disadvantage to not having VA ECMO mm-hmm. available. But would you? In other words, an oxygenator. A separate circuit, completely separate, or would you prefer as we did it, which is integrated well, into I the think what you can do is you can slam them on VV just to oxygenate because that's the first thing if you mm-hmm. in, buy some yeah. time because yeah. you've already got the access yep. and you already got dilated up. You just got to change out the catheters. Mm-hmm. Or you can VV with what you got, stick an arterial line in, and you can take about 30 seconds to clamp, clamp, cut, cut, hook it up, and just do it that way. That's the other option. And leave your angiovac as your access. Exactly. So you didn't even talk about that today, because the last case, that case we did at that other hospital, the one previously, and the one today, you stuck the femoral artery, put a wire in, yeah, she was, ready. yeah, she was. Yeah, she was. In the femoral yeah, artery, she, you had already done that. Yeah, because if I, I didn't want to lose, she had a pulse. Obviously, mm-hmm. I didn't want to lose her and not have a pulse. She was a small lady. Uh, she had already had this code, mm-hmm. cardiac, respiratory, neurologic, otherwise, mm-hmm. and her heart on echo looked bad. And so I thought we I actually thought that if she didn't do well with this, we could treat her PEs with VA ECMO. 
mm-hmm. which is a treatment for PE. She was not a candidate for a sternotomy and digging them out. I mean, they were all subsegmental. I'm sorry, subsegmental and peripheral. There was nothing central except for what was in the heart. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to be able to get in there and squeeze out the lungs and get a bunch of stuff out and help her. Mm-hmm. So it was just ride her out. So. So yeah, so that's why we had her set up for VA. Plus, we were at another hospital, and we, we didn't want her to, you know, we wanted everything in line. And, and that, yeah, the one, and that that one, that, the one that, from today. Right. right. The one today, I didn't put it, you know, her LV was not that bad, and uh, we, that was not our biggest concern with her. Now, um, not but, in, we're, but we're available to do it. Right. And I'd already stuck her femoral artery trying to get access, mm-hmm. so I knew where it was, and it was pretty crunchy, so I knew I could get in it. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about not a lot of people are doing that, or Mike was speaking to, not a lot of people are doing the ECMO combined circuit with the angiovac. Are they, is it standard of care to have the ECMO circuit available? Are these being done at places where they don't have ECMO circuits? I mean, yes, yes and yes. Uh, And Mike, you can add to this discussion, but um, from what I understand, yes and yes. Do I think it's a standard of care? I think it certainly should be a standard of care. Um, but we're however, not there yet. Other places aren't necessarily doing that as a standard of care, correct? Right, correct. But this is a v, this is essentially a VV ECMO without an oxygenator mm-hmm. uh, until you need the oxygenator. And mm-hmm. I think that from my perspective, um, if it was uh, if it's tethered to something like it's on the tricuspid valve and you're you know dealing with that issue and I, it's tethered. Um, I'm probably not as inclined to want to put an oxygenator in line. However, it's so easy to do mm-hmm. that now that I've done it again, this next trip, and we've done the talk, we drew the diagram, we sort of know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if, you know, just from a, uh, a patient a patient safety perspective that we shouldn't do it on every case. I guess my feeling is I think we should. I guess about my bottom line is, you know, I'm concerned about cost. Everybody's concerned about cost, and an ECMO circuit costs more than, you know, it's more than just a dollar or two. So, in the interest of saving money, I guess what I do it on every case, um, if it was if it was truly a. If it was me, if it was you, mm-hmm. or Vicky, yes, yeah, I'd you're gonna put it on there. That's how. That's how. Yeah, that's how you have to look at. Mm-hmm. It. Right. I'd want an option. But you get dinged, you know. So you know it's, the routine. At the end of the day, it's still a simplified circuit, but it allows you to have access. Angiovac system, Angiovac versus slash ECMO hybrid. It gives you all the options yeah, you can absolutely. do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why, why I mean, sometimes you just need, uh, while they recover, I mean, you're releasing all kinds of, in, in the words of our, you know, our ancestors, evil humors. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something That's to be right. said for, you know, changing somebody's circulation. If this is a septic type situation and they dilate up or they you break something off and become hypoxic, I mean, you know, yeah, there's no, exactly. yeah, this, we know, we know how this goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen everything. Right. You turn these patients, they code. Yes. I think yes, but I, I think too. So just, uh, there's nothing, I, I, I would be hacked if I didn't have an oxygenator available and then, and then something happened. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. So do you guys think having the ECMO circuit there and just changing it out uh, with the cannulas, or do you think integrating it as we've done, as we've chosen to do now, into the actual angiovac circuit makes more sense? The, the downside, I think, to having it in the circuit already is that, well, the upside is it's faster at that mm-hmm. point, so you can just turn it on. Mm-hmm. The downside is that when you're going to the ICU, you're gonna have to convert to another circuit. 
So, because that circuit wouldn't be appropriate because you'd have all the other accoutrements that come with it, the filter yeah. and the mm -hmm. so forth. You'd have a lot of whys going everywhere, and I think that might make it a little bit cumbersome for the ICUs. You would have to switch to another circuit at some point. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you'd Eventually. get on ECMO, rescue the patient much faster. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Gentlemen, anything? I just think it's interesting that we've taken a, you know, when the, these things first came out, they were to, to basically suck the clot out. And now the fact that uh, surgeons and perfusionists get a hold of it, we've now changed it into modified ECMO circuits. I think that's, I think that's just kind of the way we do, isn't it? Yes, I agree. Yep. That's the way we think. That's the way we do because we're thinking of, you know, not only is this an application that we can do the primary treatment, mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, we've got a secondary treatment ready and mm -hmm. ready to go. I, th I think it's a, a real boon to uh, the Angiovac, uh, you know, circuit. There's, we thinking this way and. The increase in their application. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to throw Mike in. I know we never opened the phone lines, and I apologize for that, everybody there in Web World. Forgive me. Just send me your nasty emails, and I'll try to answer them. Um, but uh, 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 Mike, you still there? So I was con I was talked to the other day, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the technology at all, so I'd really like you to discuss it. Apparently, there is some device that is similar to this that I, supposing loses less blood, but it goes into a waste container, and it's, a, it's basically a similar thing to remove unwanted intravascular material. Um, some, do you know anything about this? I don't at this time. I haven't okay. studied on it yet. Have you heard of it? There's some other device, but only what? they don't use, it's not a, there's no return. It goes into a waste container. And Peter mentioned something vacuum. in his, talk but he didn't name Peter it. Did. He just said there's another other similar devices uh, platforms out there. Mm -hmm. But he didn't go into like detail. Cardi for cardiology applications one. I guess. I think it's crazy to 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 He to, didn't to, elaborate. To, to, Penumbra? Is that the one? Penumbra? I don't know, it could be. That's a know. cardiology based mm -hmm. for peripheral clot. Mm -hmm. I've, I'll bet I've that's used it. it. Yeah, I mean it's I don't see how to have, have the application for this. Is it small? Is it smaller? Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this case, it, you don't even think that would work. Oh, no. Okay, because mm -hmm. I don't know of any other device out there. ECOS is another. An ECOS is another. EKOS. Does that remove or does that mm -hmm. just infuse? And well, is that, that more vascular? This lady is, this, yeah, it is. It's more. So this lady is probably going to get a filter tomorrow and ECOS. So for, for her legs. For her legs, her correct. Legs. So those are peripheral yeah. devices. Well, no, you, they... Do them up in the the pulmonary mm -hmm. arteries as well. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. It's a smaller yeah. catheter, but it's more, a little more maneuverable. But it can't get this. Right. It can't get large things. So that's their kind of concern. Over like a long period of time so, so it lasts. I, like, do they put the din and leave it there no, for no, a long no, time, no, or no. is it just a, no. a one-shot operation or procedure? It's, yeah, it's just a labor-intensive procedure. Okay. And the. Um, and so that was what we actually discussed in this case. That was, you know, I got consulted by a cardiologist. She talked to her peripheral specialist about ECOs. And then he said, you know, you need to call Matoyer because of what's in her heart. And so I called him. I said, look, I, I think Angiovac, we're ready to go. We can do it right now. Angiovac for the heart. And then you deal with the other later. He said, mm -hmm. sounds yeah. great. And so she'll get a filter and, and some probably not catheter-directed thrombolysis, maybe. But the ECOS and then, because you remove the clot burden, and then you can do TPA type stuff. But she, now she's got a little incision in her neck, she's got a little cut in her groin, so she'll probably bleed from that. So it'll probably just be 
suction and keep her on anticoagulation with the ECOS. Uh, her leg, to be honest with you, is because of her size, it's hard to tell if she had significant swelling. She's just kind of big everywhere, but uh, definitely getting a filter. Did she still yeah. have some peripheral clots? Oh yeah, from her left femoral down. That's why you need to know where your return's gonna be. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was convenient for me that it was the right because right. reaching over her was going to be difficult mm -hmm. for the left. But that's why she's going to get a filter, right? Because mm -hmm. she still has clots. Yes, and then maybe we'll see. You know, it may just be her if, if her leg's not threatened or anything. I mean, it may just they may just put the filter in. We'll see. Her leg didn't look that bad actually, <clears throat> but she'll end up on you know one I, of I, those uh, Zarelto or Pradaxa or something. Right, of. and just real quick, we talked about this before we close. The, I would say one of the other things this really expands the uh, application for, and, and you've already thought about this in Web World if you haven't heard about it already, uh, besides pick line thrombus, et cetera, and endocarditis. I mean, it's been done on aortic valves. Are you kidding? I think there's been one done on an aortic valve. Okay. That's off label, but. I know, I know. I'm not wow. going to say who did it. But. Peter talked about it today. Yeah, yeah he talks a little bit yeah. about that. And um, I mean, I mean, you got some like, like maybe a fibroastoma, something that's flipping little, giving you little strokes, and nothing structurally wrong with the aortic valve. Go in and suck that off, and you right. say the guy's astronotomy. I mean, I always felt bad. I've done a couple of those. You feel bad taking some young guy with a fibroastoma, going there and snipping it off and closing them up. Mm. I mean, same thing with mixomas. Mm -hmm. You yeah, know, we that's were talking about following that up. Suck those yeah. suckers off. I mean, this is just. Crazy stuff. It's it would, um, would be applicable to a lot a right atrial myxoma to be able to take absolutely. it out. Yeah, we were talking about. We're this wondering earlier. whether or not the tissue itself is more of a tissue or a cyst-like oh, situation. It may, it'll probably come back. But you can take it off, grow, off the stem and everything. Uh, it'll it will take take it off. It'll take it off. Wow. Oh, wow. And you anticoagulate them afterwards, obviously. Right. But mm -hmm. it'll probably come back. Mm -hmm. But you just follow them. I mean, I'd rather have three or four of these in 20 years than. Astronotomy. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, other applications: AICDs, uh, immunocompromised patients. Um, when I first came out, it seemed like I had one every three or four months with a fungus ball on their pacemaker wires. Mm -hmm. You open them up; they're sick as a dog. You open them up. You're taking care not to, you know, you got changing instruments and gloves and gowns, and then pulling the catheter out and you get the fungus ball off and they look great for about six weeks and then they come back, puss their chest out and they're dead. Oh. Because their sternum gets candid yeah. in it. And so this way you go in and you suck off the clot burden with the infection and then you can safely remove the leads Leaks. through the pocket. Yeah. Same thing with Tessios, um, you know, dialysis type catheters. Because you know, if it's on there, you pull it, it's a PE. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You suck it off, then you pull it off, great. Whether it's infected or not. It's coming out. Oh, it's yeah. it's pretty cool stuff. I wish you were getting one of those. I wish ever you would get those once a week now. Well, we need more cases. I think we just need to send out a newsletter. Because they're out there. Yeah. Yep. Need to figure that out. And some people don't want to do it. I love doing it. We need to petition the uh, board too to accept it as a case. It is. Is, is it? it? I was asking. It is, it is a case. Is a full case. Is it? Really? Yes. I did not realize. That's why that. I ran and did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Does it? Okay. Now it all makes sense. It all makes sense. <laughs> it's all it. coming together. Does anybody? Uh, does anybody have any further comments? Do you have any other information to add? Mm -hmm. to, uh, no. Mike. Mm -hmm. 
No, uh, he answered the question about the myxoma because mm -hmm. I was uh, considering that, and I said, you know, you got a you got a patient with all the comorbidities they may have, and maybe even a redo sternotomy. You know, you mm -hmm. just don't you don't have to do it. Well, you let me throw a curveball at you. Would you do no do this with a left atrial myxoma? No. Yeah. Through the, uh, do a transeptal? Not right now. No. 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 We I, talked I about would, that too. Yeah, we talked about this too. <laughs> Because that's at least, you know, well, now what if you, what if you used, what if you put in? Well, you know what? I'll take that back. If it was somebody who could not tolerate their chest being open, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, wait, no. It gets, it gets more interesting. What if you put in the sentinel, the tri-guard, or the, not the sentinel, but the tri-guard, that, that shield, that shield, and put that well, up there? Mixoma, and what's it, yeah, you don't, you, you, that's not. That's not my. That's my biggest concern with a myxoma, but you know, long term, it's not your biggest concern. Okay. Does that make sense? Sort of. Well, it's a it's a tumor, dude. Well, I know. Okay. <laughs> but you know, so. Okay. So, I mean, you're you're concerned about 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 sending it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you don't want that to happen. Correct. I mean, there's it's obvious the flow's strong enough that it's going to catch it and mm -hmm. suck it through a straw. Mm -hmm. But the right, but you would do it with the right side. So doesn't that have the same paradigm? Man, that's a tough one, dude. I don't know. I don't know. Look, I just, I'm asking, okay? I don't know. I'm, yeah. Thought I'd ask. Okay, Lungs are a good enough. filter. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Any other, any other questions before we go? Nope. No. Okay. Well, I want to say something very quickly to everybody. And that is, uh, and put the whole, and put everybody up. I want to thank Mike Brown, I want to thank Tammy Sparacino, I want to thank Mintran for managing all of this in my absence. I heard it was fantastic, you guys did a great job, and it really makes me, all of you, it makes me feel, I, I feel really good that uh, I didn't have to be here. <laughs> And that feels good to they me. They probably thought the same thing about you. <laughs> and I want to thank you, too. I want to thank you for uh, for, for doing this case and yep. jamming over here to finish oh, up you, on yeah, and so, And giving me a ride. Yes, I know. Because his Boy Scout project, the Tesla, died in the garage. <laughs> Boy Scout project. And he's... Yeah, that was, and then traffic was slow, little blue hairs, you know, he was panicking, so anyway. I never panic. Never, never. I'm always calm, just yeah. always very level. Yeah. You can't even tell when I'm upset. All right, well, I think our next, our next program is tomorrow, right? Is any, are there any questions from the audience? You sure? Okay. Um, so our next program is tomorrow, uh, from one to, uh, Four? no, from, yeah, it's shorter. What's the, to 4? what's the time tomorrow, David? Uh, 1.45. And goes to 4 o'clock? Yeah. Good. So, and tomorrow's topics are what, again? <laughs> hey, there you go. So join us tomorrow. Hey, yeah, for goal-directed therapy. I'm giving that talk. And goal-directed perfusion. <laughs> They sound similar, but they're a little bit different. And uh, John Ingram is going to be joining us again. I'm picking him up from the airport tonight uh, when he gets in. And Tammy is going to be here as well. And also Rodell is going to be joining us. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow, 1.45 Central Time Zone. We'll see you all then. And again, thank you so much for joining us today and being patient with all of this. But it's live TV. And when it's live, anything can happen. But that's what makes it fun to watch because you just never know what's going to happen.
That's true. See you all tomorrow. Thank you.